You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back with us in the booth this week is Mr. Daniel Bird. Hi. This week we are looking at La Marge, also known as The Streetwalker, The Marchant, and sometimes even Emmanuel 77. The film stars Joe D'Alessandro as Sigismond, a loving husband who leaves his wife and child to head to the big city. While there, he learns of a sudden, unexpected death of his aforementioned family and spends a few days living in the fringes of society, spending most of his time with Diana, played by Sylvia Cristel, a prostitute. The 1976 film is one of several adaptations of the works of André-Pierre de Mondegargues by director Valerian Borovchek, and I'll admit that I am a Borovchek noob around here. Fortunately, that is not the case for my co-hosts. And by the way, I should say that we're going to be getting to some massive spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen LaMarge, go ahead, turn us off, come on back when you're ready. Now, Daniel, when was the first time you saw LaMarge, and what did you think? I first saw LaMarge in 1994. It was released on video by a label called Lumiere, Two versions were released. One was called Lamarge for the art house audience, and another version was called The Streetwalker for, let's say, the, the Sylvia Crystal fans of England. I, being, well, a pretentious teenager, opted for Lamarge, and as it turned out, that version was considerably longer, so I made the right choice. I'd um, recently got to know Borovchik's films, mostly his early animations. And I have to say that initially I was disappointed by the film because in some respects it's more conventional. It's less obviously formal than some of the short films and earlier features. Um, but over the years, particularly in the last 10 years, I would say it's uh, grown to be one of my favorites of uh, his films. How about you, Sam? I saw it because of Daniel, uh, who screened it, what, like two years ago in New York? I had had this really crappy bootleg file that I wanted to watch, but it just, it looked so bad that 
once I found out it was going to screen, I decided to wait and just kind of instantly became obsessed with it. And I, it might be my favorite Borovchik film, but I hate having to pick. So it's up there. Daniel, how easy or difficult was it to see Borovchik's early animated stuff when you were seeing that before you saw Lamarge? I was quite lucky. In 1993, there was the release of Jan Schwankmeyer's film Faust, and uh, a guy uh, called Michael O'Prey, who'd written a lot about avant-garde film in England, he'd organized seasons of Jarman, Kenneth Anger, and things like that. He organized a, a program of short films which were in some way related to Schwankmeyer and Faust, and it was a touring program called uh, Dialogues with the Devil. The program I saw in Stoke-on-Trent, which was introduced by Peter Hames, who I believe you've spoken to about Valerie, that included shorts by Schwankmeyer, Borovchik, and Jan Lenitsa. And uh, so I saw three of those short films by Borovchik, three of the French short films, uh, Le Jeu des Anges, Rosalie, and Le Phonograph, on rather ratty, faded, scratched 16mm prints. Nevertheless, uh, uh, I was blown away. And it, uh, to use the cliche of every BBC documentary, it started a journey. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Sam? What was your kind of history with Borovchik's work at this point? Well, I think the first film of his that I saw was The Beast. So I had this group of friends in in high school when I was a teenager who we would sort of all take turns tracking down hard to find movies that we wanted to watch and we would make each other watch them. And I really punished my my poor friends. I mean, I made them watch things like Solo, whereas they were more interested in sort of exploitation movies and kind of schlocky horror movies. And I think everyone was really traumatized by the beast, (laughs) but it just, I, I mean, I loved it instantly and it just made me want to track down the rest of his films. I think the second one I found was behind combat walls, which was my favorite for a long time, but it was kind of a struggle to find them over the years, at least until more recently. Daniel, how did you get involved with the work with Borovchek, touring these films and showing them? And then are you involved with the restoration of some of these? Well, it goes back to the late 90s because you have to remember this was the time when it was, as Sam was saying, it was difficult to see these films. And the irony was that the later part of Borovchek's filmography, the films he made in the 70s and early 80s, was floating around on VHS but it was very difficult to see the early shorts and uh, the 50s and 60s in Poland and France and the early features like Theatre of Mr. and Mrs. Cabal and Go to Island of Love. So I got into programming for purely selfish reasons because I figured that if I programmed these films, I could get to see them. So basically, yeah, I approached the um, what was then called the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television in Bradford, it's now called the National Media Museum. And I told them I'd seen these three short films. I'd also seen Blanche. Uh, and I thought it would be great to do like a sort of uh, rediscovery of Borovchik's animations at their animation festival. So I started programming those films first in 98. And then by 2001, together with 
uh, Ian White, who sadly passed away, uh, who he was the head of the the Look Centre, which was part of the London Filmmakers Co-op. We programmed um, a pretty complete Barovchik retrospective in July 2001. I invited Barovchik, and initially he agreed. So we put on all the all the press and all the the you know the the, the catalogues that he would be in attendance. And then he asked uh, by fax. Uh, Barovchik was a big fan of fax. Um, what prints are you showing? And I explained. And then he refused to come. Uh, he said, these are not my films. These are pieces of uh, tape with holes punched in them. They bear no semblance at all to my films. And uh, so, yes, uh, we, we screened the films. It was surprisingly a big success, uh, particularly the short animations. Those were sold out. And I remember the look saying, we've never had had uh, to do standby tickets or we never sold out before. So we have to improvise the system. So it was clearly something happening. And, um, and then it basically planted the idea, you know, I was quite young at the time. I was uh, in my very early twenties and I naively thought, well, okay. Uh, if Project's unhappy with the copies of the film, let's make new copies. Um, so the procedure took quite some time. Eventually about five or six years ago, um, I approached Arrow Films with the idea of acquiring the French short films, the theatre of Mr. and Mrs. Cabal and Blanche, the rights of which belong to uh, Ligia Borovchik, uh, Borovchik's widow. And Arrow agreed. And uh, then we decided to expand the collection to include The Beast, The Moral Tales, Goto Island of Love, and some of the short films, some more of the short films. And while there were kind of French restorations of the Beast and the Moral Tales, there wasn't one for Goto. So again, because there wasn't funds, I um, I'd shot an interview with Terry Gilliam for about Time Bandits, actually. I'd already shot an interview for a previous release of Goto, and I used those two interviews and wrote over a weekend a campaign, a crowdfunding campaign. And uh, yeah, we raised something like £25,000, which was enough to restore both Goto and five more short films, some of the beast making of footage and some adverts. And that, so that really kind of suddenly we had like a considerable body of work, which was in restored copies. So we started to present them. We first presented them in Rotswav uh, at a festival uh, called New Horizons, which was dedicated to what would have been Project's 90th anniversary. And then the year after that, we presented them in London at the BFI and the ICA together with an exhibition of his artworks. And the year after that uh, was in New York at the Lincoln Center, which is where I met Sam. And so each of the retrospectives, they kind of got bigger, bigger and, and more exhaustive. And the most exhaustive and the most complete was uh, a retrospective at the Pompidou Center in Paris, which for me and for um, Barovic's assistant Dominic Duvige Segretan, who's you know been a collaborator on this project, and uh, Barovchik's godson, Abel Segretan, it was the most important retrospective because it was really like the, the, the homecoming. We'd done we'd done we'd done the world tour and it's back to Paris and uh, time to kind of reintroduce Barovchik as a um, uh, an artist filmmaker. So that's that's how it happened. It was never it was 
naivety and uh, uh, and and a lot of chance and luck, really. But uh, that's how it all happened. So let's talk about Lamarge. Like I said, this is my first Barov check. So uh, as we go through here, if there are things, themes, or misinterpretations that I'm giving, definitely please feel free to step in here, guys, because uh, this was my first exposure to him. I've since gone and, and checked out a few other things that maybe we'll talk about along the way. I've seen a whole lot of horse cock over the last little bit here. <laughs> um and I've seen a lot of bush, and we start uh, in the bushes uh, in this film with Sigmund, who's played by Joe D'Alessandro, and his wife, uh, Serene, is it? And them kind of chasing each other around, almost like children, enjoying themselves, and then eventually uh, adjourning to the bedroom doing this whole almost like ritualistic thing with some plants also involving sex. I'm thinking there's a lot of like almost the, the spirit of life druidic kind of overtones to this kind of thing. And this odd moment where the wife says, Oh, you hurt yourself. And uh, Joe D'Alessandro, who just looks freaking gorgeous in this film, takes off his shirt and he's got this huge gash on his arm. And I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> that, that's a little bit more than than you were just recently hurt. Or, you know, it just looks like it was a, a, a massive wound on his arm. And she wraps that up and then he kind of bears that with him throughout the rest of this film because he's naked a lot of times but he's always got that white bandage on his arm almost as a reminder of this earliest scene of the film i love that 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 early scene there's so little dialogue but it's so absolutely beautiful which i think normally i, I don't think i would recommend lamarge as someone's first barabchik film but i do think that early scene kind of gives you a good example of what to expect from his visuals one it's so pretty the colors are wonderful i'm because i last night i watched uh both lamarge and the streetwalker daniel you talked to a little bit about the streetwalker and the Streetwalker, the, the version that uh, I was generously given recently, looks beat to shit. And then you watch Lamarge after that, and it's just like, wow. Just It really takes the scales right off of your eyes when you're looking at this. It is so colorful and so beautiful. And the framing is right. You know, there are a lot of times in the Streetwalker where people are talking to other characters, and you're like, is there another person in the room? But also, to your point, Sam, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie. There are many times, many scenes that play out without characters talking to one another at all. There's a number of things to say about that particular kind of opening sequence. The first, obviously, it's a counterpoint to the rest of the movie. This is kind of the uh, very explicitly the Garden of Eden moment. And uh, the rest of the movie is the the fall from grace, shall we say, uh, into a purgatory or hell so, of course, you know, it is that very strong tableau look which Barovchik had uh, really started to play with uh, in his earlier films, this very flat-on, straight look. Um, it's interesting, there was a, a German documentary filmmaker in the 90s who was making a film about D'Alessandro, and she approached Barovchik for, to be a, a, an interviewee. And he declined because of health reasons, uh, but, but he sent... In this fax, he said uh, for him that Joe D'Alessandro was the uh, the Buster Keaton of erotic cinema, which really I think it's, it's a, I haven't heard that before, but it, it makes sort of sense in the way that Lamarge, like many of Barovic's films, it's really a silent film. 
it's obviously sound is very important, but it is not dependent on narrative in the way in which we expect from most films. And, you know, as you suggest, I mean, that's very much established in that prologue sequence. And by him being silent, you get to start to project your own feelings, your own thoughts onto him a lot of times because he doesn't have a voice for himself. It isn't until the very end of the film that he is given a monologue. But until then, he doesn't speak for himself very often, if at all. And there's just a little bit of dialogue here at the beginning where we've got Uncle Antonin coming in, this older gentleman who... I think he's he's almost like the the harbinger of death. He comes in, and he's coughing all the time. Just oh, don't don't come near me. I'm sick, and it's just like oh wow, you really couldn't get uh, much more foreshadowing here that something bad is going to happen. Other than there's there's a moment, so we we see this idyllic life of Sigmund, his wife, and his young son, who has one of the worst Adam Rich type haircuts that I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. And there's a moment where the kid goes running out to play by the pool, and I'm just like, I'm like, okay, yeah, that 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 kid's gonna go in that pool. I, I'm I don't know how I knew it. I think it might have been Uncle Antonin, uh, but I was so surprised that the kid even made it through the opening scene. So when we find out later on that the kid doesn't make it through the whole movie. I was just not surprised at all. So even the first on the first viewing, I was just like, oh, man, there's some bad shit that's going to happen here. And that's really kind of where we start to head. Like you said, Daniel, this is the Garden of Eden moment. We see this idyllic country lifestyle. We see Uncle Antonin come in and he's got all of these labels. We understand that he is a wine seller. He has all these labels with uh, butterflies on them. He gives to the little kid. The kid's super happy. And I love how the wife is like, those aren't butterflies. Those are labels, you know, just kind of like. She's much more of a realist as far as the, uh, the why Uncle Antonin is here. She doesn't like that he's kind of taking Sigmund away and sending him to the big city, in this case Paris, and really would rather have Sigmund stay at home so they can continue to enjoy and, you know, fuck like bunnies and just have a great time here in the country. Yeah, I mean, if you were married to Joe D'Alessandro, wouldn't you want him to stay at home? Hell yes. I also, I think he's so perfectly cast in this because, as we've been talking about, he's given so little dialogue that, like, I know he's gotten some criticism about his his range and how he's just not good for certain roles. But I think during this period, a number of European directors cast him in these roles that are so visual and have such little dialogue, like... Films like Black Moon or uh, even a little bit later, like Rivette's Merry-Go-Round. The, he's in Serge Gainsbourg's Je t'aime non plus. And it's basically all you're doing is looking at him. And he, he does manage to develop character, but he's so compelling. I love that Buster Keaton quote so much. But it's just like right from this opening scene you're kind of absorbed in his character, even though you're not really sure what his motivation is. I think it's important to remember that uh, Barovchik cast a type, uh, I mean, very much like Eisenstein did, and, you know, like a, a film. If, if you were going to cast uh, someone to play Lenin, you cast an actor which looked like Lenin. You didn't ask for the Soviet Daniel Day-Lewis to immerse <laughs> himself into a role and, and do 
Lenin. And, and I think Borovchik was very much the same. I mean, from the people I've spoken to, uh, he, he wasn't precise in terms of uh, the psychological aspect of direction. He didn't see that as responsibility. He cast according to time. You either look right for the part uh, or you behave right. So, you know, Michelle Simon in Blanche is Michelle Simon in, in any other film. And, and, and I think that very much applies to Dallas Hunter. I mean, he is a presence, and that's what Borovchik was casting, somebody who would look... Uh, very handsome, but at the same time have in this particular film a slightly vulnerable edge, which, you know, it, it's very, you could even say in the Morrissey films perhaps, but I mean, it's, it's, it's very much D'Alessandro the actor who he's buying into and the same as Sylvia Crystal, even though in that case he's kind of casting against type. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I, I still, so like I said, I, I love this film, but I think there are some strange moments of tension between she and D'Alessandro that wind up working in the film's favor, but are a bit jarring at first because it, it seems like she's the the one actress on the planet who doesn't have charisma with him or sort of resists his charisma in a way that not a lot of people do in the films he's cast in during this period. but. Ultimately, I, I really like that that kind of tension between them. I mean, the whole film is is predicated on this uh, courtship, which basically at the beginning, when they first start slipping with each other, um, both he and she are very guarded. It's just a purely physical and financial transaction. But at the end of the film, which I'm sure we'll discuss later, there starts to be real feeling. I mean, I would go as far as to say it's this not much of this in Barovchik cinema, but there's really a kind of like, you know, it's real love at the end of the film. And, you know, and if you kind of contrast and look at those kind of um, scenes they have together and it building up to uh, the Pink Floyd bit, it's quite special. No, it, it really is. And I think that that contrast that you were talking about, how this opening scene provides such a different jumping off point for the rest of the film. I, I love that the scene with his wife is such a stark contrast to his first scene with Diana, where she's very physically closed off, even though her, her job is essentially to not be, she refuses to take off her shirt and kind of doesn't want him to touch her. And I think it allows for a much broader range of transformation, which is beautiful. During the early 1950s, you had Borovchik making a lot of satirical drawings, you know, in the in the tradition of French artists like Daumier. And, you know, that scene, the first kind of uh, scene of sexual congress they have together, where she's where she's holding on to the, the, the money. Whilst, you know, <laughs> you know it, it is it's, it's almost like a satirical drawing. You know, it's, it's like something you'd see in a newspaper. You know, this is they're as intimate as you can get, but she's got money in her hand. And. I think that's also a problem for some viewers uh, about Barovic cinema because it's not it's not a realist cinema. Um, in the case of Lamarche, it's handheld. It's it's kind of you know there's nothing overtly stylized about it, but there is something stylized about the staging, like this holding the money. And I don't know how practical that would be, but you know it, it's certainly making a point in that first scene they have together in the hotel. She's much more close to that money than she is to him. Even the way she cradles that money up next to her neck and is almost caressing herself with the money 
as opposed to allowing him to caress her to the point where she's like, no, no, don't touch the hair. It's going to cost more money. And if you don't get the point, there's 10cc on the soundtrack to make double sure you do get the point. (laughs) Big boys don't cry. I love that, though, with the money, because Borovchik's use of objects, he makes them characters in and of themselves. And I think that it's a little jarring because, you know, she is essentially giving this erotic quality to the money. But it's a nice foreshadowing of that and kind of a link back to some of his other work where objects are given more prominence. I don't think they're given more prominence. It's just formally it's a bit different because, say, for example, a few years ago, together with Michael Brook, uh, we produced this Camera Obscura Barovchik collection, which brought together the, the short films of the 60s, the early features, and the Beast and Immoral Tales. And the whole point of that was not like drawing a line in the sand between the chaste Barovchik and uh, you know the, the later erotic stuff. It was to show that there was a consistency and I think if you look at the earlier stuff and the films which Sam's referring to, these shorts, it makes you view films like Lamarche very differently. And I think that in the earlier films, uh, it's very formal in terms of framing and editing. It draws your attention to objects. And I think the very thing which I found off-putting about Lamarge is the thing which I like now about it in the way that that attention to objects is still there, but it's not... It's not as obvious. It's not as mannered in terms of its framing and everything else. It's much more subtle. So you really have kind of a a filmmaker in transition between a very formalized, experimental early cinema to something much more looser and uh, something much more dependent on natural light, location. And it's certainly not a perfect film. And Borovchik himself had very ambivalent feelings about it. But I think in terms of moments, in terms of episodes, it's certainly got some of his best stuff because you get this language of objects, which Sam's talking about, with this looseness and spontaneity. And, uh, you know, there are certain sequences, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but with the the dwarf, with the wind, and Pepe Lamoco on the TV, which it's certainly, I mean, if I have to choose one sequence in a Barovchik film, it's that sequence in the bar with the dwarf and Pepe Lamoco. I just think it's brilliant. And for me, it's the egg. <laughs> Speaking of objects, we'll talk about later. Well, let's talk about one object, uh, the telescope. Because when Sigmund gets to Paris, he goes looking for a present for his wife. And he uh, ends up going to this shop, which is closed, but he manages. I mean, it's Joe D'Alessandro. He can get this woman shop owner to open up the store for him, of course. So he gets her to open up and he goes in and he buys his telescope. But while that's going on, and even before that's going on, there was one writer who compared this scene to almost like a Night of the Living Dead sequence, R.I.P. George Romero, where all of these prostitutes just start coming out of the woodwork as Joe is going into this area in Paris. And they are... It's a swarm of prostitutes. I don't know what you you, you call a, a group of bats, a, a cloud of bats, right, or a murder of crows. I don't know what a group of prostitutes is called, but, man, this is a group of prostitutes. And they are cu- just honing in on Joe D'Alessandro, just like, hey, the fresh you – know, one says later on, fresh meat on the hook, you know, and here's this guy in there just coming at him. The way that they have the prostitutes framed behind the window, making these lewd faces at him, I'm just like <laughs> – this is, you know, that's that moment. Like, I could kind of tell things were a little 
not necessarily a normal quote unquote narrative as we're in that opening scene and the whole idea of the little uh, pieces of, of plant that were in the wife's pubis and the way that he's almost like almost doing a bukkake plant bukkake with her. But then this, where just all of these prostitutes descending on him, I was just like, whoa, we are definitely in a little bit of a different realm. I can see that surrealist bent coming in here. And then, of course, after he buys the telescope and we get that strange shot of this iconic Jesus image, it's just like, okay, yeah, there's definitely a lot more going on to this. I really need to buckle down and pay attention to this movie because this is not just a simple story. One of my favorite things is actually that this is – so if, if you're going to talk about this whole sort of film studies thing about the male gaze, I think this film is a great example of what could be called the female gaze in the sense that the central erotic object is Joe D'Alessandro and almost – I think all of the film's female characters are – drawn to him whether it's this you know murder of prostitutes or whatever we want to call it to the maid in his hotel who almost runs smack into the wall because she's so absorbed at looking at him and trying to get him to pay attention to her it just (laughs) it's so subtle i mean maybe not subtle in the the prostitute scene that you're talking about but i just love that brobchik is not afraid to do that I think certainly it's ironic because in England at the time, you are having uh, um, a real split in two factions of film studies. You're having uh, somebody like Raymond Dergnat, who championed Borovchik, uh, certainly up till Goto. And while he wasn't a fan of Immoral Tales and the Beast, he was a fan of Lamarge. Uh, so you had this kind of Laura Mulvey uh, screen kind of set. But in fact, then you actually have this split because on the one hand, you're having Borovchik held up in the second half of the 1970s as a misogynist. And then on the other hand, you're having people like Angela Carter who uh, say, well, look, whatever you think, she's, she was a fan of Goto at least. And I know Neil Jordan drew on uh, the beast for the company of wolves. But the idea of basically thinking of women as a, uh, not just uh, baby makers as actually having sex drives of their own and things like that. And and I think Sam's totally right. I mean, this, 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 not only is that acknowledged, but you have this visual component, which really plays havoc with a narrow reading of the female gaze as is so often applied in film studies from that period. In a really enraging way. I'm reading several names for a group of prostitutes, a collective noun, I'll read them in my uh, least favorite to most favorite. Least is a horde, <laughs> as in... A horde of whores. <laughs> W-H-O-R-E-D. So, not a big fan. Stable, that definitely makes me think way too much of a, a pimp situation, which we do have a pimp in this film that we'll talk about. La Moustache. And my favorite, though, is an anthology of prostitutes. That certainly would be the Borovchik choice, I guess, given the structure of many of his films. So. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, going down to second and second, you can go to the Anthology Film Archives or to the Anthology of Prostitutes. I have to say that when I was getting into Borovchik, Robert Haller of the Anthology uh, Archives, he he uh, fully encouraged me and basically let me spend the best part of a day in the Anthology kind of uh, library uh, photocopying away. And that's how I have to say that was really a 
kind of an important start. So there is an anthology connection. Robert Haller was a big supporter of Borovchik in those dark days when there was not much out there. But the important question is, did you run into any prostitutes down there? <laughs> uh, I, I ran into a Russian on roller skates, but, uh, <laughs> but, but that was as exotic and surrealist as it got. So uh, literally ran into literally. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was there was nothing normal about that particular day. But it sounds but magical th- about that particular shot. I mean, I think there's two things which are important to mention. The first is that shot belonged to a guy called Roberto Capia. Roberto Capia was a specialist on antique dolls and uh, he made several books about this. He was friends with Catherine Deneuve. But he had a shop and he was friends with Borovchik and there was a film, which is very important, I guess, to take into account with regards to Lamarche and that's Gavotte, which is a, a 67, uh, 1967 short film which basically features uh, a conflict between two dwarves and a telescope and fruit play very significant roles in the film. So I would strongly suggest that if you're going to watch one of Barotic's short films before Lamarge, definitely check out Gavotte, followed by Diptych, which he made the same year. The other thing which is important is, I'm sure... Uh, you know uh, that the book is based on, sorry, the film's based on a book by André Pierre de Mandiog. And the book is set in Barcelona in the, the Chinese quarter, the now the, 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 the Raval district. And it's written in a way which is sort of surrealistic, like Nadia by Breton or a, a Rob Gray novel in the way that it's a, a novel about space, a place. Uh, it's about objects. It's about customs. It's about art history. It's about politics. It's very much against the Franco regime. And the problem for the film, the problem for Borovchik and the producers was that they were supposed to shoot on location in Barcelona. But Sylvia Crystal had spoken about this in an interview uh, General Franco had died, and they weren't allowed to shoot in Barcelona. Now, I guess under normal circumstances, that's when the project would have died. But the producers of the film, Robert and Raymond Hakim, had already pre-sold Lamarge to a Japanese distributor. So they were contractually obliged to deliver a film. So what Borovchik said was, no problem, I'll transpose the action to Paris. And he found an equivalent area, which is the Rue Saint-Denis, uh, which is the street where prostitutes are. And so the film is really something else. The things like the religious paintings, the eggs, certainly, they're all in the book, and they're all kind of handled in the same way, like Georges Bataille handles the egg in Store of the Eye and things like that. And there's all this kind of elements connected with art history and form and God and things like that. But at the same time, it's a different thing. It's a completely different thing. So I think he took certain ideas, certain elements, objects, phrases, and then constructed this film out of it. So I think this accounts for certain strange elements in the film. Uh, but at the same time, I think this is has to be taken into account to understanding this slightly convoluted backstory with regards to the film's production. I love how different they are, though. To me, the film is such about Paris in a way that I can't imagine it shot in another city. But I I like that it's more of a spiritual adaptation, I guess, rather than being a literal, you know, following scene for scene. 
I totally agree. I was for shits and giggles last night. I was looking up to see because not only is there a huge cultural gulf between Barcelona and Paris, and I've been to both cities. I love both cities, but they are definitely two very, very different cities. I was looking to see how far geographically they are from one another, and it's roughly a thousand kilometers, which is roughly about 600 miles. And looking to see in the U.S. where there's a similar cultural gulf and, and uh, a distance of about the same miles. For you, Sam, I was looking to see Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania and, and Philadelphia. Huge gulf culturally, but not that far uh, geographically. Detroit and uh, New York City, 600 miles. Detroit is no Barcelona, though it used to be called the Paris of the Midwest. There's a huge difference if you're going to set a story in Detroit versus setting a story in New York. So think about that when we're talking about the difference between setting a story in Barcelona versus setting a story in Paris. But yes, to your point, this does feel like such a Paris story. Just feels so natural to be there. I'm very curious how the uh, Franco era, because this was written in, what, 67, 68, I think, and when Franco was in power, was still alive, versus 76 when the film comes out, which is uh, post-Franco's death, but his influence looms large over uh, the, the country for a long time, if not still today. I think that was a big problem for the, the Barovchik, because I mean, La Marge is really the, the film when the critics turned on him. Uh, I up until that point, I mean, Story of Sin, the film he made in Poland, uh, and he had a really kind of insane kind of uh, rush of energy between, let's say, about 72 and 75. I mean, he did Immoral Tales, he did The Beast, he did Story of Sin, and then he did Lamage. So he was on a roll. But whereas the French critics had, you know, I, I think there was a, a young... Uh, French uh, guy who did an excellent kind of uh, master's thesis on Barovchik, and he did a graph about all the number of French articles published on Barovchik, and he showed that Story of Sin was the most written about film. So really, Barovchik was at the pinnacle in about seventy-five, but by seventy-six, you know, uh, that's when people started to turn on him. And one of the factors, one of the factors, I think, is the fact the disparity between this novel, which was very highly regarded, it won the Prix Goncourt, an important literary prize, and of course it isn't that film. It's something else. The question is, do you take it down a few pegs on account of its failing as an adaptation, or do you do as Sam suggests, and I agree, do you take it as a film on its own terms? And I think it captures that atmosphere um, it uses authentic ladies of the night in the film. So it has a certain, um, I hate to use that word, authenticity. And it's very much a time capsule of that period of time. I've always seen the film as something like a French taxi driver, which, you know, it came out the same year. And as taxi drivers, this strange kind of uh, snapshot of New York in 76. Uh, I mean, I always think of Lamarge is a snapshot of that particular area in Paris in 76, and with these two very lonely and isolated people uh, battling very physical urges. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I mean, I think you know this already, but I am obsessed with films from 1976 because I think there are a number of them, Lamarge included and certainly Taxi Driver included, 
that fit into this weird sort of subgenre of these kind of sexually themed films that take place in, for the most part, in cities. I mean, you have something like Yangshou's uh, Private Vices, Public Virtues, that is similar, but is rural set, where they're all about these isolated characters, and they're all really, really sort of nihilistic and downbeat. It's kind of like the the porno chic that became popular with films like Emmanuel just two years before takes a really sudden dark turn. So you're talking about water power. I love water power. You know that. That's bang on. And I think those two years, uh, that two year period between 74 and 76 is crucial because I think historically you had the French uh, president, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, who relax censorship it was one of the consequences of may 68 and so effectively all sorts of filmmakers exploitation filmmakers and art filmmakers like hodorowsky hodorowsky uh yancho makoveyev pasolini could all use this freedom to explore a type of cinema which was unrestrained so you have this kind of uh, explosion of films and exploitation films and porno chic like Emmanuel. But by 76, the same person who'd kind of opened the floodgates got cold feet and basically introduced a law, the X law, which really amounted to a certification and also uh, making films deemed kind of, uh, uh, let's say, erotic films, not artistic films, not eligible for French subsidies. And this happened in 76. So basically... You know, that, that that window, that party. I remember talking to Andrzej Zhivarski about this, because who made L'Importante uh, Sedeme, and, and that was just re- made 74 and released in 75. And that film has an orgy in there, and it features many kind of uh, real porno actors who acted as consultants and choreographers. And, and Zhivarski said that, well, he, he was watching the party and Barovchik was in the party. <laughs> By 76, the party was over. And, and I think that's really interesting that Sam brings up people like Yancher because you're having a number of filmmakers who dip their toe or danced a little in the party, <laughs> and, and some, you know, some ended up in a bad way. I mean, uh, Makaveyev uh, really got into a lot of trouble with uh, a sweet movie. Pasolini ended up dead. Yancho kind of, it took him some time to get out of that particular uh, hybrid of erotic and art cinema in Italy. A similar situation with Oshima. Makaveyev only really got on his feet with films like Montenegro at the end of the 70s. Whereas Borovchik, he plowed on. And uh, not only did he plow on, he continued parallel to make experimental documentaries and animation which nobody ever talks about because at the same year that Lamarge was released, he made a film for German television called Brief Bomb Paris, which is really almost like a companion piece. It's shot with a Russian Krasnogorsk camera using reversal 16mm film. It's completely wordless. It's like a city symphony with just industrial sounds. There's even a moment when you see the poster for Lamarge, but it really kind of it's almost like Barotic saying, look, there's two, two facets, there's two sides to me. There is the, 
the guy who's making a mainstream film with Sylvia Crystal, the Emmanuel girl, and Joe D'Alessandro, and there's also me making a 45-minute wordless film for an experimental evening on German TV. But people forget this. People forget, and they just basically look at the guy who got solid and sidetracked in softcore pornography. And if you honestly, if anybody gets turned on by Lamage, I think they need help, really, because it's, it's, it's one of the bleakest, most depressing films. It basically does what a film like Steve McQueen's Shame sets out to do but doesn't. Um, it really is like the film Shane should be, but 30, 40 years before. And uh, it's not it's not a turn on. It's a very sad film. I mean, I, I honestly do think it is a companion piece to something like Taxi Driver. Totally agreed. But I think and I know that this is probably going to piss someone off, but I'm not a huge Scorsese fan. And Taxi Driver is a film that I very much want to like and very much wanted to like as a teenager but there's something that for me just rings really shallow taxi driver is the sort of adolescent version of what can be seen in its full maturity in something like lamarge where the themes are just maybe it's because it doesn't have that sort of sense of american sexual repression but the themes are just allowed to have a wider expression that, you know, Borovchik doesn't have to spoon feed you the plot and he doesn't have to explain to you everything that's going on. Like he could easily have done voiceover narration for D'Alessandro's character and taken a lot more of the, the text from the novel, but I'm so glad he didn't because I think he gives us so much more by seeming to give us so much less. Scorsese and American cinema are much more comfortable embracing the gangster. Borovchik and European cinema is much better at embracing the gangster's mole. Um, you know, he's, better, <laughs> he's, he's, you know, and, and I think this is a hypocrisy in the way that basically, um, you know, the criticism, I'm sure Scorsese and has been subject to, um, uh, criticism about the violence in his films but you can't compare that to the criticism Borovchik received for the sexual explicitness in his films and just as you can argue that the violence is an integral part of Scorsese's cinema in films like Goodfellas, Casino and Taxi Driver sexuality is equally an important part of films like Le Mahage, The Beast and the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne so the question is are you going to waste time actually um, defending these films uh, frankly speaking I, I a long time ago I stopped getting involved in debates of defending Borovchik if you honestly think these films need defending against accusations of pornography or whatever you're an idiot and you don't deserve my time so basically <laughs> piss off and you know and if if you're not an idiot you will see that there's so much more going on in these films and uh, and I think it's a real pity that so many people are blinkered by the sexuality and uh, it's really, really depressing. It says more about those people than it does about Borovchik. Like there's that 
interview that I think is on the recent story of sin release. I, I could be wrong about this, but there's, there's this interview where I think it's a French interviewer is just such an asshole. And basically asks him why he's obsessed with sex and why he's a pornographer, but his answers are the absolute best. Like he's so disdainful and just kind of expresses the same tone that, that you just did where it's, if you see sexuality in such limited terms, then don't waste your time with his films and probably don't waste your time with most art in general. There's a story behind that interview, and it's probably worth saying. Uh, basically, he was, Barocic was interviewed by Keith Griffiths, um, the producer of the Quay Brothers, and Steve McQueen's early, more interesting films, I have to say. And it was for a documentary about the Annecy Film Festival. And of course, Annecy is like the can of animation. And this was in the early 1980s. And Keith had just got involved uh, producing Jan Schwankmeier's films. And I think he went to, to, to France, uh, to Paris and to Annecy uh, with the idea of uh, producing Borovchik's films as he knew them. And Keith is of a generation which included the Quay brothers, Andrzej Klimovsky and Cherry Potter. Uh, they were all at St. Martin's or um, the Royal College of Art. They were all under the influence of Raymond Dergnat. And they were all passionate about the short films and Go to Island of Love. So I think Keith was going there uh, with, with the, the intention of giving Borovchik the opportunity of uh, maybe returning to his roots. And there was a BFI project at the time written by Cherry Potter, uh, the ancestral mansion that was to star Kate Bush and Terence Stamp. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, but Borovchik was quite, quite, quite firm about how he wasn't going to apologize for this type of cinema and there was a French interviewer asking questions on Keith's behalf, and I think he'd adopted a tone which was deliberately provocative. I think the, the tone of the interview, the interviewer was designed to kind of wind Borovchik up to get this response. I don't think that reflected, I hope it didn't reflect the views of the interviewer. I think it was that typical kind of, you know, provocative kind of line of questioning, which you're so used to hearing on breakfast time on Radio 4 about politics, but Borovchik was getting that. So ultimately, none of that made it into the feature on Annecy. But Peter Hames, he gave me a transcript when, you know, because Peter, he he lives uh, in Stone, which is in Staffordshire, not far from Stoke. And uh, when I expressed an interest in Borovchik, he gave me this transcript, which was basically when they were making this Annecy featurette, because, of course, being a expert on Czechoslovak cinema, he he uh, and Schwankmeyer, he edited a book on Schwankmeyer. He was in touch with the Quays and Kid Griffiths and they had this transcript. And there was all this other stuff. So I went to the producer of the documentary and uh, I included a little bit on a, a very early edition of Story of Sin in the UK. But when it came to producing the box set on the Blanche released, I just tried to include as much of that interview, basically to give Borovchik essentially a platform to articulate his feelings about every aspect of his cinema. I only cut out a section about computer animation, which is fascinating, but didn't fit. That was the story behind that interview. And, and also, yeah. And, and if you're interested, I think in the UK, it's on the Blanche release. And, and in the US it's, it's on either Immoral Tales of the Beast. I'm not sure. 
But that's that long interview. That's when he actually goes in and gives that very firm uh, rebuttal to the interviewer. He says something which I've never, never forgotten. And that is true. He says, look, why do we condemn prostitutes? Why not the clients? And, you know, that's very, very relevant to a film like Lamarge. It's also very relevant to a film like Lemoir, based on a Maupassant story, which he made in, um, uh, a few years later in a portmanteau film. And it also relates to probably the most, one of the most important of erotic shorts, and that's Rosalie, about a uh, servant girl who gets knocked up and has two children by the, uh, the master of the house. And, of course, she's the one in court defending the uh, her smothering the children in panic. But the guy who got her pregnant is nowhere to be seen other than a photograph which is presented as evidence in her defense. So there is a moral component to these stories. And, uh, and I think that's really forgotten. I mean, we talk about the cinema of so-called moral concern, filmmakers like Zanussi, Bider, Holland. But Ofchik maintained that there was nothing moral about their films. And I think if you look at his films, there is something very strongly moral about them. Titles like Immoral Tales or Les Héroïnes du Mal, they're provocations about people's conception of conventional morality. He's a very compassionate filmmaker. Lamarge is a very compassionate film. Yeah, and I think the moral of the story is if you think he's a misogynist, you're clearly a moron or just haven't actually watched any of his films. And I concur with that. I love that you brought up Taxi Driver because talking about the violence versus the sex, because I think that is so typical of an American film will revel in the violence where a European film, I don't want to say will revel in the sex, but it is much more acceptable to present sex. It's like that whole, you know, working at a movie theater when I was a teenager is when I finally realized parents would come up and say, is there any sex in this movie? Can you see breasts or anything? And I would say, uh, no, but this is really super violent. Oh, no problem. I'll let my kids see this. You are okay seeing a man skewered on a steel rebar beam, but having a breast presented in the movie, that's offensive to you. So it is just such that difference between our puritanical standards here in the U.S. versus other parts of the world. It's just like, wow, I, I would much rather have my kids seeing a bare boob than to see someone you know, smacking somebody else. So... I don't know. But um, also going back to Taxi Driver, the pimp character, you know, we have sport in Taxi Driver. And this one, we have the mustache and mustache, who, by the way, is clean shaven. I love that his name is still mustache, though. But mustache, his subplot is very interesting, because as I'm watching this movie the first time, I keep thinking, oh, boy. He is going to get really violent. There's going to be a confrontation. I'm expecting that taxi driver type ending to this because we see the mustache loves to spend time in his room at this hotel doing target practice with his gun, either shooting uh, a target on a wall or shooting these wine bottles. And I was like, oh, man, wine bottles. That is such a representation of Sigmund. Oh, man, he's a deep shit. And they never come to blows. There's never that in, that moment, you know? And I think, like, he manages to see Sigmund going upstairs at one point. And if there's anything, there's more interaction between him and Diana than – and there's no interaction between him and Sigmund, which is very telling as far as how we would 
position a European taxi driver versus an American taxi driver. Which is one of the things I love. I mean, number one, Borovchik rarely does what is narratively predictable, which is why I think he's so amazing. And number two, I think it brings us back to that idea about this being sort of a woman's world or a world dominated by female desire, because there's never this showdown between two masculine figures fighting over a woman. And I just, I think it's so amazing that he, he chose that sort of path. I mean, plus it reflects the book's plot. And the mustache, him with uh, the character Bernice, I love this the Bernice subplot that happens in this uh, is great. Him telling her how to uh, present herself to men and doing this kind of like uh, prostitute one-on-one up in his room. And then her, her relationship or non-relationship with Diana is great as well because she is such a threat to Diana because Diana is a much more older and probably by what five years or something experienced prostitute. And she does not want the competition. It's just like, get out of here. This is my spot. She's defensive of where she sells her wares. And that's one of the first times that we see Diana played by Sylvia Christel. And just the, that she is, I can't say she's a very likable character. Uh, and it takes a lot for us to finally like her as we move through the film, which is another nice way that we are being challenged by this movie. I've always thought that they're both two characters with their kind of emotional guards up. I mean, she's got this very kind of ice queen demeanor. She's got the shields up. There's no, you know, it, it's all physical and she's cool. She's businesslike and everything else. And, and that scene which you're just talking about, I really think it sets the tone for the film when he says, he says straight out, do you come easily? And she goes, never. You know, I mean, to think that anybody would think this is an erotic film. I mean, in the case of Sylvia Crystal, I mean, I, I met her in 2003, and she told me then uh, that uh, she considered Diana the favorite of her characters, and uh, her only regret about the film was that she lost that, that kind of black stole uh, it was stolen from her, uh, and she really liked that. And uh, she yeah, she only had good things to say about working with Barovchik. Uh, comments which she put in her autobiography. She was much more interested in her own painting. She responded to the idea that Barovchik was a painter. And uh, so it really is interesting how the film was perceived critically with how she perceived both the film the experience of working with Barovchik and also her character. I mean, her character is so like, we've talked about this a little bit already, but I think she provides such a great contrast to D'Alessandro's character in the sense that they're both like, like you, you said or much earlier on kind of from a silent film in the sense that they say very little, but you have such a clear understanding of who they are in a strange way. And I think while the book focuses so much more on his character, I think the film kind of winds up focusing on her in a sort of indirect way. Women usually come out much better in Barovchik's later films than the men do. Uh, I think that in the earlier films, it's usually women as victim, particularly the characters played by Ligia in like Blanche and 
than Goto in the way that in Goto she prefers suicide than a life with Grozo, and she takes her own life in Blanche. But in the later films, uh, and it gets progressively more extreme, uh, it's really men who are kind of uh, basically flailing. And it's, uh, you know, there's even an interview in, in uh, Senses of, uh, no, it was, it was reproduced, who was it, by Susan Adler in Cinema Papers. And Barocic, talking about Lazaro Indemal, says, I'm on the side of these women. And, and I think that is important to take into account. He, he was, those were the object of his interest, uh, not just physically. Yes, he did have a male gaze, but at the same time, he was interested as them as characters uh, and as the motors in those later narratives. And ironically, those are the films which I think people have had difficulty dealing with historically. In my experience, though, in all the retrospectives I've done, I would say 70% are actually co-curated by women. And in the case of uh, the London retrospective, my co-curator was Maggie Hurt from the BFI. And Lamarche was the film she singled out as the one she was really passionate about. And she said something really interesting. She said that Lamarche painted a picture of a world which is a mechanical machine, all mechanisms. And you see that in all, all the, the lifts and the elevators, the trains and things like this. But at the heart of the film is a beating flesh heart. And, and that is that moment of genuine emotion between Diana and Segment right at the end of the film. And so I think that whole aspect of Barocic is really only just being appreciated by, by people like Sam, by people like Kat Ellinger. That whole aspect, I mean, Kiela Janis kind of put special emphasis on the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, where Miss Osborne's got her shit together, and it's, Mr. <laughs> it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde who can't make up his mind about his own, his own dick, you know? It's it's so there's a whole I, I think reevaluation, particularly of those later films, which were so problematic at the time of the release. And I think Marina Piero's character in Doctor Jekyll and Miss Osborne and things like Immoral Women, she's just and even in Behind Convent Walls, she just kind of represents that shift that you're talking about that happens in seventy five seventy six where his characters, his female characters become these forces of nature that sometimes maybe even often cause a lot of destruction and and violence, but in this weirdly uplifting kind of like you were saying earlier, moralistic way where they're just, they're not punished for being who they are or for experiencing desire. Well, I like that Sylvia Christel exists without Joe D'Alessandro in this movie. It is very important that we realize that as viewers, because there are too many times where we're watching movies and the untrained viewer might not even realize, do I ever see a character without this other character present? You know, is this the Sigmund story or is it the Sigmund and Diane story? There are many moments where we just see Diane on her own, where we follow her and Sigmund is not in the picture. And that's crucial. That That is one thing that, like I said, people might not realize, like she exists. She has a whole other story unto herself 
without him defining her, without him having to be in the room or looking at her. She can exist without that. And I appreciate that, that we get this introduction of her character the way that we do, that we get moments later on where Sigmund drops out of the story for a little while and we follow her. A lot of it, yes, has to do with him, the moment where uh, Mustache and her interact because she's uh, put on this uh, these new underwear and he is upset because she seems to have fallen in love with Sigmund. And I like that, too. It seems like that might be a pattern for her, that occasionally she falls in love with a client because I think Mustache says, you've fallen in love again. And it's like, oh, okay, this is something that has happened before and she is already she's had her heart broken before no wonder she is so guarded and she's going to have her heart broken again as we watch this movie unfold and i love that that scene is accomplished again with an object primarily an erotic object in the sense that we see the moment of her emotional transformation through the act of her changing clothes which i i think is such a elegant scene her always in that black. I love that too, which plays, I mean, it plays very well as far as a, a visual, uh, way of representing her always in this black, again, kind of a nice, uh, you know, looming figure of death that we're going to have throughout this film. But that black just plays off of her pale skin so beautifully. And there are so many times where she's lit, where her face is almost luminous because it is so pale in the way that the light is hitting it. She just looks gorgeous in this movie. It's also worth mentioning the ending of the film because she does have, like you said, a life after Sigmund commits suicide. And there is that coder at the end of the film, but there are several different versions of Lamage. And in some versions, you just see her in the bar. And in other versions, you see her brushing off a young guy who wants to to hire her. And then a uh, much uh, more affluent older gentleman comes and uh, and she leaves with him. And there is almost, you know, she's hardened again and uh, she survived. I mean, I mean, that's the only positive thing you can get by this film is the idea that, you know, she's experienced something. But basically, it's business as usual at the end of the film. And that's not really... I never saw that as any slight on her character. Um, it's certainly not character development, but it's basically showing she's a survivor. It's back to business as usual. I don't know. I think I took it to be maybe a little more positive than that, in the sense that the fact that she sort of survives and endures is hopeful in a way and it could be his musical choice there at the end i mean it doesn't really go out on a somber note it just she is back to what she was doing but that sort of beating heart that you were talking about and that private inner life hasn't been extinguished in any way even though she's certainly suffered in silence but i don't know i just i i love that that ends with her and not with just his suicide the way the book does. No, I totally agree. And uh, I think there's another thing, a difference between the book and the film, which really is crucial. And that's that he finds out about the, his wife pretty early on in the book and the margin of the title, which, you know, it's really, it's, it's kind of really depressing when you hear the film referred to as the streetwalker, because, you know, the margin has a double meaning. Uh, of course, it's, it's the, the pavement to the sidewalk, 
uh, you know, the, the, the area in which you would associate a prostitute. But at the same time, it's about, you know, the bit of life at the end. His life's over and he's got this period of this strange dreamlike two or three days in Barcelona in which, as you say, this 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 heading towards death with with sex as some sort of like anesthesia. Whereas in the film, it's a lot more complicated and blurred because basically um, he starts seeing Diana before he opens the letter. So, in fact, he begins that relationship before. And I, I've often wondered why he decided to do that, because it makes the character, it risks making the D'Alessandro character a bit less sympathetic. Um, but also, maybe it's something to do with Last Tango in Paris, because it probably would have been too similar, perhaps the idea of you know the Marlon Brando character in the you know learning of his well after his wife's suicide, just losing himself in a in a sexual affair. Maybe that was the reason. I don't know. I do love that there's that sort of closing line. I think it's on the very last page of the book where he says, "I have lived my life in the margins." But what I love so much about this adaptation and Barovchik in general is that he never shies away from presenting you with incredibly complicated characters. And I totally agree that it makes Sigmund more complicated to find out in the middle of the film versus in the beginning of the book. Because I think if you put it at the beginning of the film, it makes it sort of gives him this pass as, as with last tango in a weird way, it kind of gives him this pass to throw himself into this cesspool and to be in this downward spiral of despair. But by putting it in the middle, it just sort of presents their sexual relationship as maybe an economic transaction, but also as a natural one. I mean, he's, in another city surrounded by beautiful women who are drawn to him. And it just, I don't know, their relationship felt very inevitable to me. And I was relieved that Borovchik didn't feel the need to, to excuse it in some way. I, I think it does certainly make it more complicated. It's not like, it's not explaining action because as you suggest, if you had it at the beginning, it's almost like an apology, you know, an apology yeah. what comes but this, it's like basically, you know, you're not moralizing. You're putting the audience, you know, what to make of these characters. Uh, you know, and I think that that's, that's much more interesting, frankly, to actually be put in the hot suit to make up your mind, just as he did on films like Immoral Tales or Les Arrines du Mal. You know, are what they're doing necessarily bad things? And, you know, uh, and it goes back to this idea which yeah, he is a compassionate filmmaker. He's not, you know, he's not. There's no judging going on. There's no moralizing, and you know, these are people choosing, making certain decisions for better or worse. They are just there. He's not interested in those psychological processes that's inside their heads. He's interested in what happens outside their heads, which includes the costumes, the objects, the environments, and it is fascinating with Lamarge this kind of violent conflict between this kind of almost cinema verite portrayal of Paris in terms of exteriors and this interiors, which, frankly speaking, you know, it, it's so stylized and bizarre. It, it could be 1875 as much as 1975. Yeah, and I, I really love that sort of visual divide between the outside world of 
the city and the bar and their kind of internal world in the bedroom, which I think maybe about 40% of the film is set in there in these really long, intimate scenes with almost no dialogue and a really, I don't think we've talked much about the use of music, but I love his use of music in all of his films, but I think here it's particularly striking and adds just these sort of layers that I think make up for dialogue that you would miss. I think the logic behind those music choices, you know, again, it's explained by an object that they're going to do jukebox and Barovchik's argument was, well, the soundtrack is jukebox music. So what would these people hear? Of course, it's quite idiosyncratic in the way that the range of music, it's not just then contemporary music. It's Chopin, it's Argentinian tango. It's, uh, you know, so there's a whole range. I mean, you're not in one particular time. And it really does give a certain atmosphere to the film And in terms of the fact that, yes, it visually, certainly in the exteriors, it's very much Paris of 1975, 1976. But inside, you could be in any one particular time. It's like drifting in and out of 100 years. It's quite special. And, of course, that is the combination of image and sound. It's so cinematic. Uh, it's so exciting. That aspect kind of reminded me a little bit of some of the things that uh, Fassbender was doing around this period, maybe a little earlier. Films like uh, Pioneers in Ingolstadt, where it's sort of rooted in a, the story is rooted in a particular time between the in that case between the two world wars. But then he throws in all of these idiosyncratic elements that let you know that we're not dealing with realism. And there is this sort of range between 1920s Germany and 1970s Germany that I think it's kind of similar in Lamarge, as you're saying, where he takes you so many different places with very, very, in a really subtle way, like with very little details you are kind of all over the century. Well, it's almost like, I mean, the way he frames things, it's, it's uh, you know, it is an obvious thing to say, but it is it is like a painter. And of course, Barovchik's background was in painting and graphics. But those simple decisions, like the moment when, you know, Diana comes into the bar and then you see those char- the character opening the case and taking some throat out, uh, you know, how you choose to frame this action. Do you do it as a mid-shot and so the whole action do you isolate the object, the frame of the case? Do you hear dialogue off camera? Uh, you know, all of those little things by breaking up the image, looking at details, using details to speak more. It's really very, very interesting. And, you know, it continues throughout the film. I mean, the little doll they find in the, the, the hotel room, uh, you know, all, all the business with the, 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 the cigarette and the ashtray. Barovchik, incidentally, hated smoking. Uh, you know, he used to go incredibly crazy. He couldn't understand it. He didn't drink that much, but he hated smoking. So, you know, it really is kind of interesting that scene when Diana comes in and she just like throws all the ashtray away and, and everything else. But again, you see, you just see the close up of the ashtray. The first time I saw that, so I'm a little OCD. And the first time I saw that scene really bothered me because it's just such a, it's just so gross. Like she just kind of dumps out everything on, onto a table and then sweeps it on the floor. But 
I think it's yet again another subtle but elegant way of him showing her frame of mind through objects. It's using objects as a way of going beyond the what what you're seeing in the way that you know good examples Rosalie the the Maupassant adaptation where she's telling this horrific story about giving birth and smothering her children, but you don't see that. You see the the, the pillow she used to smother the children. And, and packages which may or may not contain the babies. And it's so much more powerful using those objects as a means, as a, as a conduit to this other story, something kind of beyond the visual. And, uh, you know, and I think it really does elevate Barovic in this particular respect to what Bresson was doing with objects, what Bunuel was doing with objects in his films. And that, that was my holy trinity, the three Bs, Bresson, Bunuel, and Barovic. Think that Barotrick is really, you know, and if we're going to place him, it's between those two people, and and with all that, the, all the connotations of of Bresson and 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 uh, and Bunuel, Bunuel, the famous atheist who said that he was not that he didn't believe in God, but that he was looking for God. Um, Bresson, a filmmaker often accused of being Jansenist to the point of being atheist, and at the same time. A spiritual filmmaker, the famous essay by Paul Schrader. You know, um, I often think Brovchek is a spiritual filmmaker. It's just unfortunately we as viewers are preoccupied by matter and flesh, and that the spiritual aspect of the film, or the metaphysical aspect, or the something beyond the physical, is often obscured. It's much clearer in the shorts like Renaissance or the end of Goto, uh, when the heroine kind of gets resurrected. But I think it's also there in films like Lamage and also in Behind Common Walls. These are spiritual films. Especially in Lamage, I can definitely see that connection to Bresson in his use of the just the way he conveys a character's inner life with seeming by seemingly not conveying it at all. And that use of silence. And one of my favorite moments has nothing to do with anything, but it's just this shot of Diana reflected in this sort of mirrored like panel door in the bar. For some reason that definitely kind of reminds me of those Bersanian moments where nothing seems to be happening, but it's so intense. And yeah, I would definitely agree that it's spiritual. Well, that second sex scene, because we have three major sex scenes between D'Alessandro and Christelle, which in the second one is kind of the turning point here. And that there's definitely some spirituality going on over there as far as like we have her noticing that there are church bells that are playing and she says, oh, it's Sunday morning, which I wouldn't necessarily think that it's Sunday morning. It doesn't look like Sunday morning, but whatever. It's Sunday morning, according to this film, and then them proceeding and then having this I don't know, Easter ritual, but this whole idea of the egg and kind of reclaiming life. I mean, the egg is just such a, a wonderful symbol to have that play such a major part of this second scene. Just it's such a loaded moment in this movie. And it's, I'm pretty sure, a direct visual reference to one of my favorite things ever, which is Bataille's story of the eye. And of course, Barovchik doesn't go quite as graphic as the sexual use of eggs in that story, but I love those sort of literary nods that are 
throughout his films. And I mean, as Daniel has mentioned, most of them are literary adaptations or a lot of them are, but it just this sort of connection to surrealism, but also specifically to surrealist Paris. I love so much. I think a lot of that comes from Demandiag and also the fact that uh, it has been a long time since I read the book, but I do remember that isn't there an egg in the book and isn't there some sort of association with the shape of the egg and the shape of the, the kind of the, the Christ kind of and all of that business. But Barovchik was certainly Barovchik was aware of Bataille. I mean, Barovchik, Barovchik had millions of projects and I think there's always a danger of overemphasizing the significance of those projects because when they were other script writers and like, Cherry Potter and the Ancestral Mansion, she wrote the script and Barovchik made a decision whether or not he would allow his name to be attached to it or not. However, there are also a lot of projects in which basically he had an idea, maybe it's one sentence, maybe it's a page, and then he'd deem it a project. So there was one such project, which was uh, an adaptation of a Bataille novel. I mean, he refers to Bataille in the very bizarre commentary that opens Emmanuel Five. And I can only yes. think that was a contribution from Barovchik and not uh, Steve Barnett and Roger Corman. He was clearly aware of this, but the question is, to what degree that came from Demandiog? Because in many ways, I mean, Demandiog, he met Demandiog through the producer, Anatole Domon. Uh, Domon gave Barovchik and Jan Lenitsa their first jobs as filmmakers in France, this was in 1959. So in the case of Borovchik, it was the collaboration with Chris Marker, Les Astronauts. But it wasn't until uh, the early 1970s when, through Damon, Borovchik uh, worked with Domandiag, who did the commentary and appeared in uh, a private collection, the short film, which was sometimes ex- exhibited as a prelude to Immoral Tales, and also in Immoral Tales, there was one of the episodes, uh, La Marais, The Tide, which is an adaptation of a short story by Domandiag. Domandiag was a writer. He was an intellectual. He had this connection with surrealism. Uh, he wasn't a, a kind of an orthodox surrealist. He was one of these people floating around at the perimeters like Max Ernst. But nevertheless, he was an advocate of strange, bizarre, and uh, taboo-busting Films and artwork in the 60s and 70s. He championed um, Viva la Muerte by Fernanda Arabal. Uh, he also championed uh, uh, Empire of the Senses, which, of course, also refers to Bataille's story of the eye with an egg scene. So, yeah, eggs, I guess, were very much in, the, in the, well, on special offer in the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rob Grier makes a reference to them as well, but you bringing up Dalman, I feel like we should mention that earlier when we were talking about this kind of cinematic sexual revolution and all these films coming out, he produced, I think, almost all or co-produced almost all of those French films, even things like In the Realm of the Senses, where it's a co-production. So I, I really wish, and maybe this exists in French, but... I really wish somebody would write a book about his involvement in that whole sadly short-lived but glorious few years where sexual permissiveness and transgressiveness just really took over art house cinema. 
Well, I can recommend a book uh, which was published in French and was translated into English uh, by the BFI in the 90s. Uh, the Pompidou Centre, the same venue which we hosted the Baroque Retrospective in February and March, back in the 90s or around about 89, they did a, a retrospective of Damon's films. So all of them and the short films, the features, and they produced a, a book, it's like a scrapbook, uh, with text by Damon and also archival memos, synopses, things like this. And in that book, uh, he talks about this, uh, his kind of uh, erotic tendencies, and he, single, he talks about them in terms of Poland and Japan. And of course, in the case of Poland, it's obviously Borowczyk and Immoral Tales and The Beast. But in the case of Japan, it's the two films he made with Oshima and also Teriyama. Who yes. produced uh, the the sequel to Story of O, uh, the the Fruits of Passion, which incidentally was originally proposed to Borovchik because one of the producers of Blanche, uh, Philippe Dargila, was the son of Dominique Ory, uh, aka Pauline Réage. Wow! And she, although she'd sold the rights or didn't have the rights to the Story of O, she did have the rights to the sequel. And she gave those to her son, and her son originally approached Borovchik. Interestingly, Borovchik wasn't interested in adapting this, although there uh. is correspondence between Darjila and Jacques Baratier. So the project ended up with Tariyama, and Borovchik was a huge admirer of Tariyama. And again, you know, this is this is Borovchik wasn't wasn't somebody you know who who was very generous with praise to anybody in the sound era. Uh, he was much more keen on <laughs> silent filmmakers or people who actually were on the fringes of cinema, early animators. But Terry Armour, he held an extremely high regard. And it is interesting to compare the films Terry Armour was doing throughout the late 60s and 70s with those of Dick. There's even in Throw Away Your Books and Run Into the Streets, there is a sequence in the film with the rabbit, which is clearly drawn from the same Demandiak story, which Borovchik uses in Les Erreurs de Mal. So I, I agree with Sam. I mean, it is part of this strange mishmash of high art and uh, what is considered exploitation. And it's kind of sad that that didn't really exceed much beyond 1976. But I think it didn't, primarily because of that X-Law and also the, the, the distinction between art films and, and commercial films and also the withdrawal of subsidies. So there was less of a financial incentive to make artistically interesting uh, sexual explicit films in the second half of the 70s. It's heartbreaking. David J. Bond put together a book uh, from Syracuse University Press of the fiction of André-Pierre de Mandiarc, and I really recommend that. He goes through and really picks apart a lot of the themes and returns to those, and he really uh, does a great job of relating the short stories to the uh the feature length stories uh what would end up being the film adaptation was called the girl on the motorcycle and then uh lamarge which was uh definitely his that was like madiarg's pinnacle achievement for a long time he finally got some notice uh from that and got a, a massive uh accolade for that but uh yeah it's a it's a great book the way that he puts that together unfortunately he doesn't speak to the movies very much at all i kind of wish that he had taken that next step but uh he just kind of mentions them in passing which i think you know uh, this group us three we definitely want to hear much more about the films than just the sh the short stories in the books but um i have to say that bond did a great job well I, I, to, if you're interested i mean I, I totally agree about that book and it was uh certainly 
Uh, I, I really got into Demandiog in the 90s through an English publisher called uh, John Calder. And in the 60s, he had this Calder and Boyers. And they were all the books by Rob Grier, including the dramatic works of Samuel Beckett, Roland Topo, Arabelle's plays. It was all on Calder. And Calder was the English publisher of those uh, Demandiog translations. I think Lamarge was Richard Howard. And that, that David Bond book was really like a life raft. Um, but since the publication of that book, because it's quite old, it was published in the 80, early 80s, I think. But there, yeah, there's been a number of essays. Uh, Roberto Curti, the uh, Italian uh, film historian, unfortunately, it's only in Italian, but he has written about the relationship between Demandiog and Barovchik. Um, more recently, uh, an English scholar, uh, Jonathan Owen, who wrote an excellent book on Czechoslovak New Wave Cinema, he's also kind of written and touched upon this area. So I think slowly literature is starting to appear about this strange dialogue between this peripheral figure of surrealism and Barovchik. Uh, so, you know, I think that's a, that's an ongoing debate. And, uh, and I think much more of that's going to come to light. It was the Jules Fontaine, uh, the, the, the French scholar I was mentioning, he did his, uh, master's thesis, uh, specifically on this subject. And I hope very much he publishes it and preferably an English translation because it's really vital in terms of understanding the dialogue between Barovchik and Demandiog. He went and got all the correspondence from Khan and put it together with the Barovchik correspondence in the Cinematheque Frances, and it's it's quite a, an illuminating um, overview of their their relationship. That sounds amazing. I'll have to I'll have to get you to put me in touch with him because I definitely would love to read that, even if I have to slowly translate it myself. <laughs> Well, it would be very nice to be able to publish it uh, along with some other texts, the authors I mentioned in English, to actually open up this debate further. Yeah, definitely. And isn't, Mike, isn't Jonathan Owen going to be on one of your Czech episodes? Yes, he's supposed to be on the uh, Closely Watched watched Trains episode, as opposed to Closely Washed Trains, (laughs) (laughs) which is a whole other book, whole other movie, yeah. Uh, I would be remiss not to give props to Heather Drain for the piece that she wrote about uh, Fruits of Passion, the the story of O, quote-unquote, sequel. Um, she did a fantastic job with that, and I'll uh, link to that uh, on the show notes for this show. And I'm so glad that you guys brought up Teriyama, Teriyama because as I was watching Lamarge again yesterday, I was just like – it just felt like there was something to it as far as it reminding me of Teriyama. And I was wondering if there was a connection between the two filmmakers. So I'm really glad that there was. Of course, there is that, you know, I kept reading about, uh, uh, Oshima and I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I'm glad that Teriyama had a, a connection there to Borovchek. And I don't know if it was the scene of the group of people gathered around and uh, that poor black dwarf that we mentioned earlier, him trying to get in on this group and looking. This is bizarre. How many guys are in the street kind of clamoring? And are they looking just at a reflection of the legs of a prostitute as she's walking a client upstairs. Am I seeing that right? That seems very similar to a scene in Goto Island of Love, uh, which I'm sure you remember that scene with the kind of the socialist uh, mass brothel with all those kind of old baths. And uh, there's a scene with all the kind of the workers and the kind of gray suits queuing up and banging, waiting to be let in. So, I mean, I've always thought that that scene certainly reminds me of that scene in Goto. But in terms of Teriyama, I mean, Teriyama was 
you know, a huge enthusiast of French culture and French surrealism. He was also an enthusiast. There's a, 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 a Polish colleague who's researching Terry Armour for his doctorate, and uh, he drew attention to the fact that Terry Armour was also a big fan of Gombrowicz. So this kind of uh, Polish surrealism, if you will, and he'd written about this in Japanese. So, you know, it's I think that the moral of this is really we have to get away from nationalist cinema and we have to kind of take into account that, you know, you can be from one country and read another uh, literature from another culture. And that's particularly true of Borovchik because Borovchik is kind of his identity he never considered himself an exile. He wasn't a Pole in France making films about Polish issues uh, because he couldn't say them in communist Poland. No, he was an emigre. Uh, he, he, he brought something from Poland, but he was having a dialogue with French culture. So you have this equation. You know, Zawarski was always very specific about this. He says, well, look, you know, you, you have what strikes you as surrealist, Daniel. It's, it's Polish romanticism. So there is this kind of uh, what can often appear to be the surrealist aspect of Borovchik's works. You could argue, as Szewewski would, uh, that this is in fact a facet of Polish romanticism. And this is why Blanche, based on Yulisz Słowacki's Mazapa, is such an important work. And Blanche is a film about the violence which comes from frustrated sexual desire. So it really is the kind of the flip side of a film like A Moral Tales in which you don't get violence, you get consummated sexual desire. So, you know, it really is time to kind of dump this idea of claiming Borovchik for Poland, that he's a Polish filmmaker, or, or that he's a French filmmaker. It's really, he's an emigre, in the way that Zhuwowski was an emigre, that Polanski was an emigre, Skolomowski was an emigre, Jan Lenica was an emigre. I, I really love that you brought up that Gombrowicz connection, because the first time I ever heard of him was in a book on Teriyama because the the first time I was in grad school I did some work on on his plays and was so baffled that that was one of his influences like I, I just at the time sort of wondered okay how did he find his way to this Polish writer but I love that you made that point because I think Again, one of my favorite things about Borovchik is, which I think makes people find him frustrating, is that this tendency to always want to put somebody's work in a particular box, he constantly frustrates. But I think that's what makes his films so interesting. And I think I love that his films kind of make you work a little bit. Like you, and the same thing with Zhuavsky. You you can't just watch them and expect this straightforward narrative. I mean, there are so many different influences and literary and artistic references that I think it's worth exploring and it's rewarding to explore. I think really, I mean, in the case of Borovchik, I mean, one of his major contributions. I mean, when 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 I first started to look at those kind of there's uh, answers to journalists. Uh, I mean, in, in 2011, basically, uh, Borovchik's kind of house, uh, his widow agreed that she wanted all the papers uh, taken out and deposited. And, and so we, we took them out, organized them, and then put them in the Cinematheque and then the objects in Annecy and Lausanne. But at that period of time, there were so many papers which had completely unaware of and there was one ironically it was a japanese journalist asking questions 
And uh, there were Barovchik's answers, and one of them was about his filmmaking heroes. And yeah, it was only Deseka, which is the, the 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 only sound filmmaker. Everyone else, Emil Cole, Eisenstein, Chaplin, Buster Keaton. And at the time, I thought, is this a form of arrogance, just citing people who are in the canon and missing out everyone except Deseka? But actually, it kind of makes a lot of sense because if you look at the films, I think Barovchik's real strength of those early films, the shorts, it's really explicit. He tears away the image and the sound. And if you look at, say, for example, that famous kind of article by Eisenstein, Pudovkin and Alexandrov, a statement on sound, this kind of Soviet response to the introduction of film sound technology and this kind of guarded, guarded excitement guarded in the sense that there was this fear of just filming plays and taking a retrograde step, but excitement and the possibilities of combining sound and image in the same way that you would combine shots. And that's exactly what Barovchik does. He combines sounds, music with images. And when you look at a film like Lamage, you know, or any of Barovchik's films, it's very rare that you get to see people talking on camera. Usually you hear them and usually you see something else. It's only in the one of his later films, like Ceremony de Moore, do you actually see the characters speaking. But in the earlier films, the image is very different. And what you hear on the soundtrack, whether it's a sound effect, a piece of music, or a piece of dialogue, affects how you look at those images. So really, and as far as I'm concerned, Barovchik was mining that early excitement of people like Eisenstein at the end of the 1920s about the possibility of combining sounds and images in often violent ways. And Lamarche, it has all those elements, the contrast between images and pop songs, uh, the contrast between sound effects, the wind sound effects and images, and the contrast between dialogue, you know, the, 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 the fame, the one which you hear off screen about the executioners um, never smiling and the victims always smiling. Uh, you don't see someone speaking that, but you hear it and it affects what you see on screen. And I'm really disappointed that more people don't do this now. Well, let's talk about two scenes where that really plays out. And I think they're pretty much back to back in the movie. One scene is our friend, the black dwarf shows up again and there's this whole conflict that takes place. It's almost like a cartoon. It is, it is very much the whole, uh, he and a couple of the prostitutes in a little room off to the side, watching a scene from Pepe Lemoco and then one of the other guys in the bar going in and turning on this horrible pop song that is just really, really obnoxious. I'm sure I would love it uh, had I heard the entire song, but just the way that it interrupts this scene from Pepe Lemoco, this very touching scene, and the way that they go back and forth, almost like cartoon characters, and just kind of upping the ante with each one until the one guy comes in and just takes the television set and just tears it down and smashes it on the ground. Compare that to another violent, quote-unquote, explosion, uh, this moment of catharsis, possibly, finally, for uh, Sigmund's character, where it is the third sex scene between he and Diana. And to your point, Daniel, there is very little, if any, dialogue, very little, if any, sound effects, and it is almost all just shine on you crazy diamond playing on the soundtrack as we have this sex scene playing out and that is finally the moment where we actually have this moment of orgasm from uh sigmund but it doesn't necessarily even seem like a 
a pleasure. It seems like, like I said, a catharsis. It seems like he's finally come to grips with this, uh, that he is ready to read the rest of the letter that he has gotten because at this point he has only read one line from this letter that he got from his housekeeper and he's finally able to read the rest but there is this moment of him chasing after diana because after the sex scene she runs away and god you talk about a phallic elevator we're definitely talking about that with this thing the way that the the pistons and everything are are happening but that sex scene with just the the pink floyd going on is remarkable that song i will never be able to listen to the same way I, i've also now seen this movie so many times that yeah i just if it it's come on the radio a few times when i've been in a public place it's like, well, I guess no one else here is picturing Joe D'Alessandro having an orgasm, but what can you do? It's a very painful one. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, that nipple twisting is definitely, that's where you cross that pleasure pain uh, area as well, too. I think about the scene you mentioned earlier, the the one with the, the black dwarf in the bar. I think, this, I mean, it is fascinating because on the one hand, you could you could take that film as an autonomous short film. And in many ways, it's very similar to Gavard, the, the, the film I mentioned earlier with the two fighting dwarves or little people, um, however we want to call it in terms of political correctness. But uh, the uh, in terms of the scene in the film, on the one hand, it doesn't really contribute to the development of the narrative in any conventional way. I mean, you could take it out and it wouldn't disrupt things. At the same time, it says everything about the film because I think that it really spells out a conflict between the contemporary and the past, this nostalgia for the past, a past which may not have ever existed, a romanticized version, that you have two people in completely different spaces. The, the John who comes in is nervously puffing his cigarette and he's playing, putting on that awful music. And at the same time, you're having you know, all the working girls just kind of lost in Papillomoco. And it really does, it is like a a spelling out this kind of this uh this conflict between two times two spaces and two values and what's even more interesting about that is that pepe lamoco was the very first film which the hacking brothers produced and lamage was the last uh, i don't think it was planned that way but it really does kind of give uh, a, a different kind of resonance to that uh, that whole sequence in that scene and i love that that shows up i mean i know earlier we talked about how American films, particularly anything associated with crime or gangster movies, have this emphasis on violence, but there is this really rich tradition of French gangster movies. I mean, certainly through somebody like Melville, but these sort of 30s films, I think, kind of connect to the same tone that Lamarge has, uh, certainly in a different way and without with maybe more of a melodramatic context rather than a sexual one, but just this sort of picture of urban Paris and working class Paris and people sort of driven to these emotional extremes and the ways that they try to get themselves often fatalistically out of those situations. I, I think it sort of adds another layer to what you mentioned earlier, Daniel, about how Lamarge seems to capture so many different times at once. It's like this is a, a tiny window into that. 
they have this sex scene and uh, he chases her through the subway system, can't find her, goes back up to his room. And Dan, you were talking earlier about objects and how important objects are in a Borovchik film. And here we have the return of that telescope. And that is what he's been using almost as a, almost as a paperweight really to hold down the letter from his wife. And we saw him very carefully. He just read the one line from it earlier and then sealed up the entire envelope. Like he just doesn't even want to deal with this. And now it seems that he, either is ready to deal with this or he has to deal with this. And that's when he finally reads the rest of the letter and finds out that it's not just that his wife has died, that she died because she threw herself off of a tower because their son had drowned. So finally that swimming pool, that, that, that uh, dread that I had sent so much earlier in the film is back and he ended up drowning. But now finally, Sigmund is ready to kind of deal with what has happened. He's, I think this is the moment where he's done living in the margins. Well, and I think this is one of the things that was a little bit jarring for me when I first saw it, because I didn't really understand why he just abruptly decided to kill himself. Like when you read the book, it makes more sense because it's this very clear reveal early in the book where he just reads the one line of her letter. And then I think it's like the second to last page or something. He reads the whole thing. So I feel like that maybe kind of could slip past viewers, but I, I do love that he, he takes this just sh- such sharper turn in the movie than in the book. Well, he, you do see that shot um, in a scene much earlier in the film, I mean, which we've already touched upon, where he does start to to read the letter. So the implication is already planted in the viewer's mind. But like in the book, it doesn't really uh, become clear the full picture until this um, climactic scene. There's also, since you brought up how he uses the telescope as the paperweight, I feel like every time I watch this, I notice something new. And this last time around, I so the the last time I watched it was actually about a month ago. I screened it as part of this kind of educational sort of art house screening series. And everyone was very confused, but very absorbed. And getting to see it, even this, you know, sad bootleg print, getting to see it in a theater, I noticed this sort of connection between the telescope and the fact that she jumps off what seems to be an observation tower. And I just, I really like that he kind of, I'm sure it's intentional on his part, but even if it isn't, I love that he sort of ties that together. Well, there's an interview he gave around about the same time or just before he started making Lamarche and with uh, a French journalist called uh, Max Tessier, who, uh, Incidentally, was very uh, keen on covering a lot of Polish emigre filmmakers, including Zawawski. And in this interview, Borowczyk, he says something very interesting about how the significance of not just binoculars and telescopes in his films, but also the particular optical effect, uh, you know, the telescopic effect. And, and he equated it with like uh, being a general in a battle. And when you're, you know, on top of the hill and you're surveying the war, you use a telescope to pick out the details. And not only do you get that very much in the kind of the visual way Baroque structures his films, 
but they're also a prop, so there's a reflexive element to it as well. And also, I mean, there, there is that shot in Limoges as well, where you actually see the kind of the uh, the the kind of the Greek Orthodox god image as well. So there is a kind of a, a moment of reckoning when all these elements come together, particularly with the paperweights and the towers, you say. Well, the thing that I remember the most from the book is the idea of not necessarily understanding things clearly the first time around. There's that uh, amazing scene. He's uh, pretty much napping at the beginning of the book, and there's this whole thing about him napping. And he hears someone outside of the, the apartment, outside of the hotel room, and he thinks that they're saying parabola. And then only to find out that they're saying para hoy, so for today, and it's a woman selling lottery tickets. And it's just like, that's such a nice little capsule moment at the beginning of that book to say, like, things aren't necessarily the way that they initially seem. And at first, I was thinking that when he read this letter, that it would be recontextualized the second time to find out that, oh, no, his wife isn't actually dead. But no, it's it, in fact it's the opposite way. It's actually worse the second time than that he reads it. The novel isn't a culmination of details, and uh, you know, and I think that's why Borovchik, even though the film's very different from the book, De Mandiag recognized in a quote which was uh, used on the poster of the film uh, that it was very much in the spirit of his books. You know, uh, he uh, these are two filmmakers. This is a, a writer. I mean, who's creating a novel which is kind of drawing on this surrealist tradition and this kind of uh, Rob Grier type tradition. And it's, it is like a collection of details about Barcelona, uh, customs, cultures, details, objects. And, uh, you know, and you can say it's, it's just, I mean, the way that Barovic transposes that into a kind of cinematic form. And the scene at the end of the film with the pool, there is this uh, thing which runs through all of Barovic's short films and his features. It's almost something to do with entropy of kind of shifting from a kind of an organized state to a disorganized state. And you have in the opening scene in the, the when, when he's back at home with the family and you have the whole thing with the cards and the dog and the inflatable ball. And then you've got all of those elements reconfigured uh, in total chaos at the end of the film where you know the cards are in the pool and so is the ball and things like that and you have the the reflection of the uh, the uh, the police officers coming in to effectively see the see, survey the scene and all of that you know that that isn't expressed explicitly it isn't expressed in voiceover it is actually through this kind of not just objects but the the way those objects are arranged in relation to each other you know it is a scene of chaos at the end of the film it's so beautiful though and i one of my favorite things about his films is i think and we we talked about this a bit earlier but it almost follows that sort of silent film logic where even if you don't speak French and you maybe don't have subtitles, like you still could figure out almost everything that's going on, at least on a sort of symbolic level in a way that I think few other directors either intentionally do or manage to pull off. It's a very interior film. I mean, both of the characters uh, in uh, uh, Diana and and Sigmund and in the film and that a lot they're not explicating their their feelings and their their inner thoughts uh very different from the final film of Borovchik Ceremony de Mort when it you know which is also based on a Demondiac novel and also concerns an encounter with a prostitute but this is 
very, very different. I mean, whereas that film is pretty much wall-to-wall text and uh, verbalization, this is it's it's a much more internalized film, and uh, and I think that it certainly makes you know it's like the the final sex scene so much more powerful uh, because it is expressed through you know expressions and uh, and gestures. But I think that's also how he does really manage to translate the book in such a powerful way because like you're saying the book is so internalized and it has some really really beautiful dialogue like the first couple pages he talks about how mike you mentioned this a little bit but he talks about what it's like when he sleeps and how his wife talks about how his body is like a corpse and it's just all this really great very sort of surrealist style foreshadowing, but I love that Barabchik manages to translate that without doing the kind of voiceover or something that maybe a less visual director would do. And this is the only moment of the film as he's driving out of town and going out to kill himself that he's really given any sort of a monologue and he's talking to himself and he does this whole thing where he's kind of railing against the world uh, that he is not a bad person yet i've never killed never hurt anyone never stolen or told many lies i don't recall ever having harmed anybody listen i'm a good person why did did bad things happen to me that is one of the only moments i think where delisandro really has a good chunk of dialogue otherwise he's fairly silent through the rest of this film. As you said, this does play out like a silent movie so much of the time. It's interesting because a lot of his films from this period, a lot of his European films, there are similar sort of trajectories where he doesn't have a lot to say for most of the film, although he's often the visual centerpiece. But then he'll have these sort of moments where he's given either a really emotionally explosive scene like in Rivette's merry-go-round or a scene like this where he he does have a, a monologue but i think that i i mean i i love him as an actor but i think i particularly love that balance what do you guys think about that scene after he does stop to kill himself and he's again descended upon by prostitutes and the one prostitute jumps into his car and she's ready to go. She's just like, okay, let's do it. You know, the money out kind of thing and gets really upset with him because he's just, he's already pulled the gun out. He's ready to murder himself. And uh, she's just so shocked that this guy isn't uh, there to pick her up. It is the closure of a circle. I mean, he's effectively at the beginning of the story where where, where he says an encounter with a prostitute. However, the mood, the tone, the ambience is completely different because so much has happened to him uh, emotionally. So, you know, a similar scenario is confronted with. It's actually a hellish situation. It, you know, he, he's it's uh, which again, you know, Demandiag does again in in in, in Barocic films again in, in Ceremony de Moore. So that film as well, you have the majority of the film concerning a prostitute played by Marina Piero, and then at the very very end of the film, the climactic moment, he encounters another one, and again the relationship is completely different and on its head. Yeah, and I think Lulu kind of follows a similar pattern where. There is this sort of complete, the, the circle's completed and there's that kind of reversal at the end. 
But here, it just, it kind of makes me think about, and I know I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I love that he sort of follows this trajectory where kind of at the beginning of the film in the early encounters with prostitutes, it seems like they're the commodity and D'Alessandro's character is sort of maybe in a more predatory role. But you come to realize that in this particular hellish, as Daniel just said, world, he's actually the commodity, the customer is. And they're just sort of swarming around him waiting to for one of them to be able to pick him off. I think what starts off as a film where you're maybe not sure what the tone is, it becomes increasingly clear through his changing encounters with these prostitutes that it just, it seems bleaker, grimmer, more nihilistic. And we didn't talk about one of my favorite scenes, which Daniel and I have talked about before, which is when he's waiting for her at the bar. And I'm not sure if they're prostitutes or rent boys or what they are, but when those two gay guys come up to him and try to proposition him, I feel like it's a little bit of a, that's around the time when it slides into him just kind of being not attacked, but he's definitely a target (laughs) throughout the film. Yeah, that seems like we might just dip back into a Warhol film any moment now. The, the, the disappointment does seem on both sides of that uh, failed transaction there, though, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> what do they ask him? They they say something about that we're the best fire eaters in town. It's it's also worth mentioning, uh, but the Lamoir, the the episode Barovchik directed for the 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 private collections portmanteau film. Oh uh, yeah, years later in '79, which is based on a Guido Maupassant story, and it's interesting in that film which concerns a guy going out to the Marlin Rouge uh, to to uh, pick up a, a dancer. And, of course, the, the dancing is presented as effectively a, a showcase and cover for prostitution. And uh, and it actually begins uh, with a vo- voiceover when he uh, he says that, you know, this this is a, a distraction to, to fend off melancholy, which may lead to suicidal thoughts. So, I mean, it's that, that direct equation with this kind of uh, suicidal loneliness with an, an encounter, a sexual encounter with a prostitute. It's very much, you know, it, it is an interesting counterpoint to Lamarge. And, uh, and again, in that film, this kind of uh, um, promise of heaven in the, in the early scenes with the, the, the dancers of the Moulin Rouge. And it's certainly kind of the fantasy breaks away uh, to reveal a much more mundane, harsh and cruel reality. And in that film, of course, he over the odds for the privilege of staying the entire night rather than a few hours. And of course, finds out during the course of the evening that um, the the girl he's with keeps uh, her son hidden away in um, a kind of wardrobe or cupboard. And of course, when he falls asleep, you know, he the the child kind of, reveals himself and uh, the guy suddenly feels very different about what he's doing in his transaction. And it seems to be, you know, Barovchik, mean, the question is, I mean, what, where the sympathy of uh, Barovchik lies in this. And he, as we mentioned earlier, he was a compassionate filmmaker. And uh, it is a very unusual kind of uh, position to adopt because on the one hand, like in Lamarge, you're kind of engaging with this kind of uh, fantasy aspect of uh, prostitution, but at the same time undercutting it with the, the brutal realities, let's say. And, uh, you know, you certainly get that feeling at the end of Lamarge that these are 
people trapped in their own uh, little spaces, struggling for survival uh, economically and spiritually, and some people winning and other people's falling under. But that's one of the things I love so much about him is that I think he's particularly gifted at depicting those kinds of contradictions without, like we said earlier, without this sort of clumsy moralizing where he's clearly siding with one or the other. Like, you can appreciate both Diana and Sigismund and both that those sorts of two different roles without like you love both characters and you you understand what's what their motivations are and what's what worlds they live in. And I, I like that complexity so much, especially in this film. There is an element of tourism in some of these type of films whereby, you know, when when it, when when you present a brutal expose of the sordid realities of prostitution, yet you, the viewer, are <laughs> along the along for the ride, uh, voyeuristically peering in, but you have morality as a sort of alibi that uh, no, this isn't voyeurism, this isn't spectacle. You're you're merely uh, you know complicit with the director in uh, keeping an open mind to the the sordid underbelly of society. And I've always found those type of films. Uh, slightly hypocritical, and I think that this is also a complicating uh, thing with regard to reception of Barotic's films because you know he he has it he has it both ways. You know it is you know it, there is a spectacle aspect, there is a voyeuristic element, um, but there's no shying away from this, and so it's I think it's always a problem for particularly critics. I'm not sure about audiences, but definitely. Definitely critics, what do you do with these films? And I think that it's really, really acute in the case of Lamarche because the casting of Sylvia Crystal is, uh, it's directly uh, in opposition. It's a total counterpoint to the persona and everything which Emmanuel signified. At the same time, from a distributor's point of view, it was not only obvious, uh, but irresistible when it came to marketing the film as some sort of adjunct, or in some cases, uh, a, a, a sequel of sorts to Emmanuel. So you end up with a very bizarre situation, and I think this is one of the many reasons why the film didn't really find an audience straight away, and that is that you're promising from a commercial point of view, or you're promised by the distributor and the sales material an Emmanuel film, and what you're getting is something very different. You know, I kind of understand why part of the audience may have felt shortchanged because you're led to believe one thing and you're delivered something quite different. I think if you're also expecting a more straightforward kind of drama about prostitution, I mean, this is in an entirely different universe from something like Mona Lisa, where it, it does have that kind of quality that you were talking about about that sort of tourism aspect which this doesn't well i think it's interesting you mentioned mona lisa because there's a, a film comment piece uh with neil jordan when he talks about lamage or the street walker as a guilty pleasure and uh i mean we've already Ain't talked about it. he's uh um Shouldn't feel guilty for liking this movie. Exactly, and and you know because it, it it's really I think this is another problem. Do, do do you appreciate such films ironically? Do you hold them as as a kind of a dirty piece of underwear? Uh, no, I, I I would like to see much more films like this, and uh, it is it, it it's a mood piece. It's it's 
you know, I can't think of many films which really capture the atmosphere uh, of that particular period, this, this 75, 76 of Paris. You know, every, all those little details, like the, the, the little mail cars and things like this, and the, uh, it's, it's not just a time capsule, it's, it's just something, it, it really is quite special when it comes to establishing a tone, uh, a very melancholic tone. But that's what makes it so special. In a Western film, we might end with Sigmund there in front of the horses, killing himself, fade out, roll the credits. But this film does not end that way. And in fact, there are two endings to this movie, which is very interesting. One that was on, I believe it's a Russian DVD, where we go back to uh, Sylvia Cristal as Diana, and she comes down the stairs uh, at this hotel again, kind of a, a an echo to an earlier scene, uh, sits down, and <laughs> that's pretty much it. There's a, there's a, a creepy guy who's looking at her. She sits down in front of some fruit and fade out. Roll credits. That's the Russian version. Then there's the Streetwalker DVD uh, um, or VHS or however this is coming to us, which looks like garbage, but at least there's a little bit more to it where it starts the same way. She comes downstairs, fixes her makeup. There's this creepy guy there. There's another guy who uh, this kind of like lecherous schoolboy who comes over and um, tries to proposition her. And uh, he eventually goes away and she goes away with this um, uh, old, old lech, as I'm calling him. And then it fades out and goes to credits, which is nice that we have a little bit more of her at the end. And the song, God, the song that plays this one I've never heard before called uh, Glass of Champagne by Sailor. Fantastic song. That song will get stuck in your head for weeks, I guarantee it. And then it's got this great, I mean, the, the lyrics are perfect of, I've got the money, I've got the place, you've got the figure, you've got the face, let's get together, the two of us, over a glass of champagne. Talk about a perfect song to end this movie. And I think that song is, I'm, I'm pretty sure I said this earlier, but for some reason, I find the ending to be weirdly hopeful. And I think the song has something to do with that. It's worth mentioning, I mean, the, 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 the sheer number of variations of Lamage, because uh, I think in most cases, Barovchik's films, they suffered from cuts, uh, but the, there was a, a single uh, kind of intact uh, director's cut, but in Lamarge there seems to be several different versions. I mean, as, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, there was this the Streetwalker kind of cut and uh, a, a theatrical release of Lamarge. But in addition to that, I mean, I've screened several 60 millimeter prints, which are they've been missing the the, the letterous guy at the end. Uh, also, that Russian uh, DVD which you're referring to. It's not just missing the ending. There's whole sequences like the bit with the 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 pimp at the beginning of the film, uh, mustache. You know, the whole coverage, the whole editing of that scene is different. I mean, the whole sequence is edited from different shots. And uh, part of the explanation is the fact that yeah, you have this uh, Japanese deal whereby the film was pre-sold, and uh, and of course some scenes were kind of shot without pubic hair, so. You have less of the egg rolling scene uh, in the scene in the the kind of the uh, crazy horse style cabaret. In one version, you have the lights coming up and then all sorts of guy people in the audience, like including Noel Simsolo, 
who was a critic and was also writing uh, scripts for many of these type of films and worked on a couple of unmade Barovchik scripts. He puts an egg, uh, you know, as one of the objects. Uh, and, and of course, in the in this other version, which we screened at Lincoln Center, uh, a guy, uh, a kind of muscle guy, comes in and picks her up and takes her away from the audience. So there was clearly different shots and scenes, you know, filmed uh, for protection and for different versions, which didn't really happen with Barotic's films, what he did in this particular case. So it, it is a big question mark over which version is definitive and uh, uh, which version was um, prepared for the requirements of distributors around the world. In this particular instance, I think Lamarge, I mean, Barotic was unhappy with the making of Lamarge. Uh, I mean, he had usually had his way. He was the star of many films, but in this particular instance, he was working with two real, recognizable, bankable stars, Sylvia Crystal. And, you know, Joe, Joe D'Alessandro was a name at that time. Uh, and so suddenly he, he was a director and um, employed by producers. Well, you know, the pecking order wasn't as clear as it was before. There were a lot of arguments. It was unpleasant for him by all accounts. And uh, it clearly was the case whereby there wasn't a definitive final cut. So, you know, it is interesting taking into account all of these different variants. And how would you deal with that? So if, if you could do like your dream Blu-ray release of this, how would you deal with that? It, to be honest, it, the, 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 my perception of that film, I mean, at, at the moment, uh, it's trying to work out. Uh, I've spoken to um, the assistant editor who subsequently went on to become the project's regular editor on the later films. And um, uh, unfortunately, she can't shed any light onto this particular problem. Um, my my feeling about the film is the one I consider definitive, unfortunately, is perhaps colored by the fact that I saw it first. It was that initial Lumiere release. Um, it seems most complete. Uh, it doesn't have scenes shot specifically for the Japanese market. But I can't really take into account those strange sequences like on the Russian DVD when they're edited from different shots and different sources. Um, so, you know, I think that the, the, it, it is... It won't be in any way, if, for example, Lamarge was restored, it will be a real restoration job as opposed to um, sourcing a negative or an interpositive and transferring and cleaning it up. This one will actually require some serious philological work. And, you know, I have a gut feeling and I have some testimonies and I'm aware of these different versions. But, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know at this stage. I mean, I'll take any version at this point. It's a similar thing here. I mean, the the difference when you look at some of the earlier films, how you feel differently about them, seeing them in good quality versions, like the theatre of Mr. and Mrs. Cabal. The first time I saw that film, uh, it was really faded 16 millimeter prints. And uh, it was only when we transferred the interpositive, we realized how much color was in that particular film. And, that color and the role of color, the way Barovchik uses color to emphasize certain things and change my perception of it completely. And uh, so I think that, you know, that that is very much the case of Lamarge. I think that the fact that that film has, like Dr. Jekyll, has not ever been available 
on DVD, let alone a good quality VHS, means that when that film is finally available, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a revelation. It's only when we've started to screen a high quality 35 mil film uh, that I would say uh, I've been I've been hearing positive things from audiences. Uh, a lot of I mean, it has to do with the, the quality. I think maybe it's just an accessibility issue, much like you said with Dr. Jekyll. I, I think people will have a positive reaction to it if they can get a chance to see it. I could be wrong, but... I think also that the, I mean, the I was... attitude towards Barovchik has changed, because I think at the time, by Lamarge, Lamarge, I mean, if the Beast and the Moral Tales, they, they could have been seen as kind of... Uh, uh, experimentations, let's say, not just with the mainstream, but with erotic themes. But when you see those two films and Story of Sin and Lamarge, you know, I think there were some critics that are thinking, okay, this is, this is the point of no return. Do we subscribe to this or not? And I think that was the film which many critics disengaged. Um, but th- the reception of those films is colored by this, uh, stigma which is attached to Barovchik and that is that yeah he was uh somehow went from animation to uh to uh, the porn industry and again when we, we talked about this but what was described as porn in the 1970s is probably an episode of game of thrones today you know it's that de- is definitely not considered porn by today's standards so that if a good quality version of lamage was made available I don't think people would respond in anywhere near the same way they did back in 1976. They would see it in an entirely different light. Uh, and it, it, it's just stripping away all that bullshit and all that smart ass commentary, isn't it? Isn't it funny? We're playing with a guy who's working with high and low culture, blah, 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 blah. It's just so fucking tiresome. Yeah. You know, it enrages me. I like, I can't, I can't handle the, whole guilty pleasure or let's watch this but acknowledge that it's a a piece of crap because it's an exploitation film it's just like go fuck yourselves so much anger yeah there's a whole business of barovchik in the 1980s Uh, it's the the you know art of love you know which it's a film which i really have a hard time dealing with but also i think that barovchik just saw it as a bill paying job i mean his big his big thing in the 1980s was building his house, and uh, his house is stunning. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, the, the the house which he built in Lavezina. It's it's and it's definitely not the one that appears on the Wikipedia entry. This is a big problem, as you know, with the normative way which Wikipedia works. But yeah, the the picture, if you Google Barovchik, the house which appears is not the one which Barovchik designed and lived in. Uh, the place he built was this very modernist bungalow, but that was his project. Uh, that was his. That was where all of his energies lay in the 1980s. And if that meant directing crap like The Art of Love and uh, signing up for Emmanuel Five and then doing a few episodes of uh, Siri Rose at the end, so be it. I mean, if Steve McQueen can do Burberry adverts or Agnieszka Holland can direct for The Wire, you know, I don't see any difference here. And you know, this is a very different business. You know, his real interest was graphics, animation, documentary. And, and this actually, if you position a film like Blomage in conjunction with uh, his documentaries, his interest in exploration of graphics, 
and and also animation, because as we've already mentioned, Borovchik didn't distinguish between film and animation. This is a graphic cinema, and uh, you know, and also the documentary. What is the distinction between documentary and fiction? A film like Diptych, which Borovchik made ten years previous to Lamarge, half the film is documentary as we conventionally know it, and the second film is a counterpoint, a fictional studio film counterpoint to the documentary episode. All of those distinctions are blurred, and and Lamarge's, you know, in in some ways, despite the fact that Borovchik himself distance himself slightly from the film because of what he perceived to be the compromises he made, the interference of producers, this uh, variation of different cuts. It's got, I think, some of Borovchik's best moments, you know, in, in the whole of his filmography. You know, the, 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 the strange woman that, that lives in the hotel with her cane, the way she kind of spies through the 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 keyholes and then she kind of flattens the bed with the end of a cane you know it's it's just it's magic agreed completely agreed we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews the first is with jeremy ritchie who is writing a book about sylvia christelle the second is with noel Verri, the cameraman for lamarge and the third is with brovchek's assistant michael levy and we'll be back with those after these brief messages Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The viewer's guide to genre television. Welcome, everyone, to a special supernatural focus bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B Movie Reel. Shoot it! Shoot it! (laughs) (laughs) That's about describes it. All right, everybody stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Known throughout the ages as an instant classic. (laughs) We need a bigger gator! Uh, Limb cutting and blood squirting from... (laughs) Flying limbs, I called it in my notes. (laughs) What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since there have been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. By this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. Our future depends on it. Make it safe. 
My name is Jeremy Ritchie. I'm the um, editor of the print-only publication Art Decades, uh, and I'm also the author of uh, a number of different blogs, including uh, Moon in the Gutter and Fascination, the Jean Roland Experience. <laughs> I should mention the also the author of uh, the upcoming book from Emmanuel de Chabrol, uh, Sylvie Cristal in the 70s. What got you interested in Sylvia Cristal? I first discovered her as a teenager in the 80s, mainly through a, a photograph that I'd seen of her, and I I was uh, really, really intrigued by it. She just seemed uh, kind of otherworldly, very different than any other actresses that I, you know, had kind of become aware of as a teenager. Um, and then later on, I, I discovered, obviously, Emmanuel and Emmanuel too. And it was really my discovery of Lamarge, which was actually, the timing's pretty good. I first saw it in the fall of 1996, so it's been just over 20 years ago. Uh, and I just thought she was uh, just r- remarkable in, in Lamarge, and that kind of got me interested in her career. When I discovered that she had had this flurry of films with directors like Barofsek, Rob Roulet, Chabrol, in this short span in the 70s, that's when I became really, really intrigued by her and her career. Well, I know Emmanuel was one of her first films, but she made a few films before that. Have you had a chance to track those down? Yeah, I've got all of the films that she made, and not all of them, unfortunately, have English subtitles. That's kind of a barrier, but I do have copies of the film. And in my research for the book, I am trying to reach out to as many people as possible. And I have made contact with a, a few people that worked on those early films with her. I just recently interviewed an actor who had a small role uh, in the film Julia uh, that she made, which goes under a number of different titles uh, in Europe. But uh, Julia is what it's most commonly known as in the States, which she made right around the same time as Emmanuel. So, yeah, I, I do have copies of those films. She's mostly in smaller roles in them. But you can definitely tell there is something very special, uh, even in that early work, that led up to Emmanuel. If people are listening to this and they haven't heard of Emmanuel, can you try to encapsulate just what an impact that film made and why it was so big when it came out? Yeah, it was absolutely huge. And I, I kind of feel like, uh, I mean, for a, for a period, she was kind of the, the biggest international you know, female actress in the world because of that film. Uh, it came along, it kind of coincided with the whole porno chic uh, movement that came out of America with films like Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door. But Emmanuel was uh, a softcore film, extremely stylish, very erotic. Uh, it was based on a very controversial uh, novel by the same name. It was a worldwide smash, uh, and uh, it, it, it had a huge impact, and it was extremely influential, uh, not often in the best ways. But uh, it's actually, you know, it's a really stylish and beautiful film. It was one of those uh, must-see films from that period in the 70s. Uh, that's, yeah, I think a lot of people maybe have only heard of it, misunderstand it. Uh, I know when she passed away, a lot of people referred to her as a, as a porn star, and that that wasn't the case at all. She never did any anything remotely hardcore. She was an erotic, erotic film star in regards to Emmanuel. Uh, but, it, but yeah, it had a major impact on the film industry and especially uh, the French film in that period. The Emmanuel films, are they, or at least the first one, are they more hardcore or softcore? The ones with Sylvia Cristal are completely softcore. Later on, uh, there was some hardcore footage added to like, Emmanuel 4. And then there was that string of just kind of awful kind of TV productions. And, uh, I mean, the, it just went on and on. But the, the original three Emmanuel films that she made in the 70s were, were softcore films. What was her relationship like with uh, Just Jakin? 
I mean, from what I've researched, they had a, a really, really strong uh, personal and professional relationship. I mean, he was kind of her professional mentor. You know, he, he put her in that role that kind of just made her explode, you know, all over the world as far as this internationally, you know, known actress. And they, you know, later they got back together and made an adaptation of Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, in the early 80s, which uh, my book will kind of conclude with, even though it does kind of fall out of the, the period that I'm researching in the 70s. But I do think it's kind of an important work, and it's it's the last chance that she had to make a, a really great movie, which it, it does fall short. It's not a great adaptation of the book, but it's, it's a film that does have a lot of great qualities. Uh, and I think she's terrific in it. You know, he was an extremely stylish director, something very distinctive about his films. They had a really, really good relationship. I mean, the the, the role of Emmanuel kind of haunted her throughout her career just because it was what she was always identified as. And when you really delve into her career and look at the other films that she made in the 70s, uh, particularly Lamarge, which, you know, she did name as her favorite role in her, her own um, autobiography. Uh, there's a lot more to her than just Emmanuel. So it was something that did kind of, kind of follow her around. But was, at the same time, it did make her break through and it did give her the opportunity. You know, she said she, she loved the traveling aspect. She loved, you know, having the opportunity to do those films, even though, you know, it did kind of ultimately become this kind of thing she couldn't escape from. And if memory serves, Lamarge was even known as, what was it, Emmanuel in Paris? Or? It was Emmanuel 77 <laughs> is another, uh, name that got that it was promoted with at a time, I'm not sure where, but I've seen a, a poster advertising it as that, which is really, you know, Lamarge is, is, I think, as far removed from Emmanuel as possible, uh, but they were obviously were really trying to capitalize on, you know, her success in Emmanuel, which is understandable from a financial standpoint, but I think that it, it hurt Lamarge in the long run because I think people that maybe you know, went to see it or have seen it since expecting that kind of just checking soft focus, soft eroticism uh, from Emmanuel would probably have been disappointed. I mean, it, it, it is a very different film. Barofchek's a very different filmmaker. It's much more serious uh, film. And uh, yeah, it definitely gave her, I think, the, the best part that she ever had. So I'm, I'm really glad that she got to make it with him. You know, I first discovered the film or first read about the film in, in Immortal Tales, the Tohill and... Uh, uh, Capital book, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering your names, but uh, I know that was a book that was important to not just me, but I've discovered so many other film writers and film fans uh, that kind of came of age in the 90s and the collecting gray market VHS copies of these films before they were so readily available in America. But I did want to especially mention um, Video Watchdog and uh, specifically their issue number 32. That's how I Initially, they had a review of Lamarge by Brad Stevens, who would become one of my favorite writers. And he was the first person that I ever heard referring to it as a masterpiece. Um, and specifically, he praised Sylvia Purcell's performance in it. Uh, and it was kind of his review uh, that made me seek out the film. And I remember getting it specifically. I, I very clearly remember getting it from this company called Luminous Film and Video Works. And I, I'm sure a lot of collectors from the 90s will recognize that company. That was how I initially, you know, really the film came into my view was thanks to Brad Stevens and that original video watchdog review. I just can't say enough about this, about the film. I, I just, I, I've loved it since I first saw it and I've collected as many different copies of it as I can over the past 20 years, you know, trying to track down the best copy available. And I, I actually have three different versions of it. There is an alternate cut of it called uh, The Streetwalker 
which um, is definitely a, an, an inferior version to the Lamarge, but it's an absolute must for collectors. Uh, it does have some alternate footage, and um, it, it, it's its own kind of film in its own right. It's an English dubbed version. You can hear Dallasandro's own voice in it. So it, it, it's a fascinating work in its own right. It's been an adventure in the past 20 years, you know, tracking down different versions of this film, and I hope that... Um, I really hope in the next year or so we finally get uh, an official release of it, especially with all of the other, you know, Barofchek titles that have come out from like Arrow Films and Olive and, and so forth. Uh, it, it seems like a prime time to finally get Lamarge release to the general public. Now, how did you find the Streetwalker version? I think I got it from a company called Video Screams, uh, which is, I think, one of the last sort of, uh, that I know of, gray market sort of, distributors that still functions as they did in the 90s and most of the companies like video search miami miami and luminous and european trash cinema midnight video all those companies are have kind of vanished and have gone because of streaming and because of you know the easily accessibility of so many of the films they used to put out but uh video screams is a company they're here in america i can't remember where they're at but anyway they they had a copy of streetwalker uh that i managed to snag several years back it was kind of this mythic thing that I had read about. I think, I think it's mentioned in Moral Tales. I know Brad Stevens talked about it in his uh, original Watchdog review, but it, it is a very interesting variation of, of the film. Uh, it's edited, so some of the more explicit footage is edited out, but in its place, Barashek, instead of just doing a straight edit of the footage, he would add, you know, various close-ups of Joe and Sylvia that aren't in the original and just various different sort of alternate angles and I mean so it's a very different film it feels different the the rhythm of it is different uh it's definitely not as powerful it's not as accomplished as the film as Lamarge's but I do hope that if Arrow or whoever whatever company eventually does release Lamarge I think Streetwalker would be a definite great uh, special feature to have uh, with the Blu-ray, but it, it is a really unique kind of alternate version of the film and getting to hear Dallas Andrew's own voice I think that's something you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of, of Dallas Andrew, and so if you've followed his career, he has such a distinctive, <laughs> a distinctive thick kind of New York accent. So when you watch Lamarge and you hear his voice dubbed, it, it, it is kind of jarring if you're familiar with his other work. So uh, the Streetwalker is valuable just for you know for that one reason, um, but but there's a lot of other you know great attributes to the film. So yeah, it, it, it's it's a really interesting variation on it. I was researching for our talk, and I I actually have a third version of the film, which I didn't even really realize that I had, and I need to ask Daniel about it, because it's basically, it's Lamarge, only it has a different ending. It, it um, There's that little moment at the end of the film where she suddenly starts, starts speaking in Dutch, and she kind of turns away one John, and she lets another one pick her up, and they kind of walk off. Well, the, the third version that I have ends with a close-up of the her sitting and the kind of the fruit and the reflection behind her in the film ends. So I didn't even realize that I, because I've, I've collected so many versions of the film, I didn't even realize that I had this particular copy of it. I don't know if it's, it's just another edit of it or what exactly it is, but I was, I was really surprised when I, um, yeah, I was, I was researching for it and I'm like, oh, I, I have yet another version of it. Why does that role stand out for you? First and foremost, I mean, the thing that stuck with me and it's, it struck me the very first time that I, you know, I saw the film more than 20 years ago. It's just how powerful she is in it. I mean, it's a really accomplished performance, and she's somebody who, I think, for the longest time has kind of been 
uh, critically derided and uh, film historians have kind of really undervalued her as an actress. But I think when you watch Lamarge, it's an extremely, you know, detailed and just a really, really fine performance. You know, and when I first saw it, that's, that's really what struck me about her work and it just, just how really wonderful she is in the film. And, and when you watch it, you really realize that, um, this was somebody who deserved more opportunities than she was given, uh, which is kind of going back to kind of, I think, Emmanuel haunting her throughout her career. I mean, if she just wasn't given, given the chances she deserved because of the way she looked, because of her, you know, status as just a sex symbol, uh, that a lot of people perceived her as. So, but I think, uh, Lamarge, along with the film that she made with Chevrolet Alice, are her two best roles. But Lamarge especially, I just think that, it, I, I mean, I think it's a masterpiece, and I just think that, yeah, her work in it is, is pretty astounding. Well, it's interesting that there are so many beautiful women in the film, but when she shows up, she is just such a cut above everybody else that's in there. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I mean, especially, I, I know, I, I think her introduction to the film is really unforgettable when the way that he uses um, 10 cc's of lazy waves on the soundtrack, which, you know, watching the film, it, it, it feels like it was written for that scene when she comes in and, you know, she is in her sort of domain and, uh, you know, she kind of brushes off the younger prostitute in the room. And I mean, she tells the lady to leave her table and she knocks over her cigarette. I mean, it, it is her her domain and and yeah she is a very powerful presence i have a friend on facebook who um recently mentioned a comparison to garbo which i think is really uh dead on i think she would have been a, a really splendid silent actress there's something about the way that she holds herself and there's something there's a real grace about the way that she moves one of the interview subjects that i've made contact with in my book who worked with her later and um the Concord Airport 79 remembered that the way she moved was very much like a dancer and that she just had this, this very graceful quality about her. And I think that, yeah, like you said, when she, when she is on screen in Lamarge, she really controls it. Uh, it's, it's pretty impossible to take your eyes off her. Even when Joe D'Alessandro is on the screen, who is also somebody who's, um, very magnetic and very charismatic and, and beautiful to look at. What was her background before she got into acting? I think the the way that she kind of originally got into acting, um, she had won a, um, I forget what the, the contest was, I think it was Miss Europe. So she had done some modeling and, and, and I think a lot of typical kind of ways that a lot of young, beautiful women in the, you know, in that period got into the movies. I mean, it was kind of based on her looks. But from, you know, the people that I spoke to, she was extremely introspective, pretty reserved, quiet. She didn't fit the mold of the typical kind of sex symbol bombshell that you might expect. And she was actually, oddly enough, pretty uncomfortable, especially in Emmanuel and Emmanuel too, and a lot of the scenes that she had to perform, the point where by the, really by the time that she made Lamarge, I mean, I've heard D'Alessandro mention that she kept talking about how she wanted to play a nun because she, she was tired of being viewed as a, as a sex symbol and, and for her body, even though I think that the, the nudity, nudity in Lamarge has such a wonderfully uninhibited quality about it, and it's really there's a there's a certain freedom to it that that I think is very unique and, and separates that film and all of the films that Brofchick made. He had a way of working with his actors that there's a comfort level that you just don't don't feel in other other films. Well, what kind of things have you found out about what went on behind the scenes of Lamarche? Lamarche actually has been one of the tougher films to find people that you know, that are around, that are, that are, that I've been able to make contact with. Um, I do know that she, um, 
apparently was working on a book throughout that period and she would always have a notepad with her and, and would write down notes and then was working on uh, what I guess was a novel um, that, that I, I would love to, I'm sure it's in her private uh, with her family now or, or whatever, but I, I think it would be fascinating to read the stuff that she was writing. But apparently she was just very quiet, very reserved. Um, the people that I have spoke to have all, I've not heard anything negative about her in that period. She, she seemed to be, um, very well liked. And, uh, yeah, I, and I, from reading her own book, um, uh, working with Brochek, uh, always seemed to be a bit of a challenge, but she, I think, viewed him as, as somebody that she had a lot of respect for and, um, a lot of admiration for her. I think that you can tell in her performance that she is a very there's a there's a real dedication that you can sense to, to the way that she approached that role and I think working with with Brochek on that film um, you know and also that's I mean just the there was a uh, even though Brochek at that point after a moral tale they think was beginning to really slip um, critically uh, you know, there, there was still a very much a, a prestige working with that film. I mean, you had Glenn Wells editor, and I mean, it's it, it, it's still it, it was something that it was a definite step up for her, and I think that she she definitely recognized that. I have to say, I'm very glad that you're covering uh, the Chevrolet film Alice or the Last Escapade because for I, I know uh, for a lot of years that was really hard to find, and it is so striking of a film. I love it. I. It's definitely easier to see now, thanks to YouTube and you know collectors trading it and so forth. But I, I'm still really surprised that it's not kind of been granted a, a more official release. I think it'd be an ideal release for Criterion. You know, just the fact that it's a, a Chabrol film alone makes it you know worthwhile to a lot of film buffs. But yeah, I, I think it's a it's an incredible film and. Yeah, it, it is really, I think, the last great film that she had a chance to make, which, again, I, I think Lady Chatterley uh, has a lot of really good qualities about it. But, you know, once she came to America and once she tried to break through in Hollywood, which I, I think was the biggest you know, mistake that she ever made personally and professionally, her career really, you know, went into kind of a downward spiral. So I think Alice stands as it's really this kind of last great moment and, and what should have been a, a really, really, uh, you know, a much more rich career than, than she would give me the opportunity to have. I'm curious, how many chapters are you dedicating to the nude bomb? <laughs> uh, I no, Not many. <laughs> Pretty much the films that she made after Alice, uh, there were a couple of European productions I'll be looking into, but I'm, I'm not delving much into, you know, like the nude bomb and, and, and private lessons and, and so forth. I mean, I, I really, I feel like Hollywood has had this tendency to really take these fine European actors and actresses and, actresses and for some reason they bring them here and they don't seem to know what to do with them. I mean, even somebody like Isabella Johnny, who I don't think anybody would disagree with is one of the like really, truly great, you know, actors of the last 50 years. You know, she, when she has come to or been put in American films, I mean, it's pretty dismal. So I, I think that the, the last section of the book will kind of be, will cover some of the films she made post uh, Europe, post the, the great directors that she worked with, uh, including the new bomb, but um, they're, they're very disappointing. As much as I enjoy watching like um, the Concord Airport 79, just for its uh, uh, over the top silliness factor. I mean, you know, the, the fact that you do have, 
Sylvia and somebody like Elaine Delon, who, you know, these two, you know, kind of incredible European, you know, cinematic icons in this film, I think kind of says, says everything about the way that Hollywood would treat great distinctive European uh, performers and actors. Have you had much luck um, finding a fairly decent copy of No Pockets in a Shroud? Um, I do have a copy of that. The quality is not bad. Uh, it, it, it doesn't have English subtitles. It's not an English language friendly print that I have, but I, I do have a copy of it, yes. Jean-Pierre Maki, he's another director who just nobody really talks about his work, or at least not mm-hmm. very many people. Uh, and, it, it, you know, between that and uh, Latan and even uh, uh, Amor Labre, Arbiter, um, it's like, yeah, he made some some great films. Uh, what was it? Uh, the, the Big Wash. And it's like so many interesting movies that he made, but people don't talk about his work at all. I know, and I and I, I totally agree with you. And there will be quite a quite a lot in the book um, about his work. And uh, I mean, that's one thing that I am delving into in the book. And I mean, it is a, a pretty small um, group of films that I am I am writing about. Uh, so it is giving me the opportunity to, to write a lot about the the people that made them. Um, so there will be quite a bit about him. And even not having an, an English language, you know, kind of friendly print of that film, you. You, you can tell the, the great qualities of it. Um, it it's, it's, it's a really, really good little film. I have had a little lot tracking down a couple of people that worked on the film, so um, I haven't uh, done the interviews yet, but uh, I am going to hopefully have a couple of, of um, good surprises uh, for people that have seen that film and do like Foxy's work. You had mentioned Julia. That's one that I'm not familiar with, but it seems like another um, uh, another great director had worked on that as well. Yeah, Julia was one of those, um, in the 80s, you would uh, kind of at mom and pop video stores, it would be kind of one of those big, top shelf big box films that you would always uh, uh, see that um, definitely uh, capitalized on uh, Emmanuel. Um, it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's an okay film. I mean, it's, it's nothing overwhelming, but it is a, it's, it's a, it's a good little movie. Um, and it is one of the, the main starring roles that she had right around the period of Emmanuel. Um, and I did recently interview one of the, the cast members of it who shared, uh, some of the, some of his memories, uh, that he had working on it. It's been, uh, a real challenge, um, tracking down, you know, people that worked on, I mean, these films are now more than, some of them more than 40 years old. Um, and a lot of people, most of the people are based in Europe. A lot of people have sadly passed away, uh, and a lot of people are just really, really hard to track down. So when I do make a connection, even if it's with somebody that just had a small role, it's kind of like a, I have a little mini celebration each time. Well, do you have a timeline for when the book's supposed to be out? Um, I originally had hoped to have it out by the end of the year, but because I am tracking down a few more people than I, I thought I would, actually in doing more and more interviews, um, I uh, am hoping, I mean, I, I, it, it might be moving into next year at some point, but uh, uh, at the latest, it would be early next year. Hey, yeah, as somebody that's been working on a book project for over five years, I completely understand how it goes. This is the first full-length book that I've ever attempted. I, I, I've done a lot of writing, you know, online and with different publications and so forth, but uh, yeah, to something of this scope and yeah, it, it's it's a it is a definite challenge. It's a, it's a very different uh, different beast than writing a 
you know, a, a short article or, or even a longer one. It, it is, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And especially, you know, having a family and working, working full time and, and trying to keep up with the magazine that we put out. And, uh, I've recently started blogging again. So it, 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 it's very, uh, it's, it's time consuming and, and not a lot of time. So. <laughs> Yeah, tell me more about the magazine. Well, our decades, we started uh, in 2014. We just released our 11th issue. Um, the whole idea behind it was to um, kind of put out an old-school, you know, print-only publication just because, um, you know, you hear so much about print being dead and, and everything has kind of moved online now. And, I, you know, I've, I've been writing online for over 10 years Um so I obviously, obviously see a lot of value in that, but I, I do, you know, I, I grew up with, with print-only publications and, you know, I mean, that's kind of been part of my life since I was a kid. And it was always kind of a dream of mine to have, you know, my own magazine. And, and uh, so that was, you know, where it came from. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, it's, it's my wife and I put it out. We do everything ourselves. We've got a chance to, you know, interview different artists and musicians and directors and so forth from all over the world, including you know some of our own personal heroes, and so it's been a you know it's been a great opportunity. It's it's, it's extremely hard to it's extremely hard to sell <laughs> a print only publication uh, in 2017, but um, you know we we just basically do it out of the love of it and and out of the love of the the different writers that we work with and the different people that we've had a chance to to speak to. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a we we want to keep it we want it to have kind of a homemade fanzine sort of quality about it but also you know it's in color and we try to make it um as distinct and professional as we can so it's, it's kind of a thin line to walk and i i i'm sure that a lot of people don't get it <laughs> once they once they see it but uh yeah it, it's it's something we enjoy and and i i, I do you know, I'm proud of the fact that we've managed to get more than 10 issues out so far. Uh, it, it, it's very difficult um, putting together a, a print-only publication. It's, it's a much different. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a much different battle than you know doing a blog or, or just doing online work. Well, where can folks go to order the magazine and to check out your writing online? Uh, Amazon is the best place for the magazine. Um, it, it, all of the issues are available there. Um, you can also order it um, directly from us if you like from our website or we have an eBay store as well but Amazon's the easiest uh, as far as my writing online uh, Moon in the Gutter uh, is definitely the, uh, the, the, the where most of my stuff is um, probably the most popular site that I have is the Jean Roland site Fascination and I also have a, a site dedicated to Sylvia uh, which is called The Return to Utrecht um, which uh, is mostly photographs, so uh, hundreds and hundreds of photographs of her, a lot of which I will be using for the book, and a lot of material that I've held back that I have in my collection that I'm still uh, gathering that's going to be in the book, because I do want the book to be a, a very visual uh, work with you know lots of rare lobby cards and press books and press clippings, and so I'm I'm part of not only you know, writing the book and, and tracking people down at work with her. I'm, I'm also trying to, uh, gather as much, uh, material like that as well. Uh, you know, which is also a challenge because again, you know, searching down the clippings from 40 plus years ago is, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, but luckily I've, I've, um, managed to 
I've had different people from Europe contact me that have had, you know, collected clippings and that they've sent me and so forth. So I've got some really cool stuff that's going to be in the book that uh, I think a lot of the fans are going to be really happy to see. Dans mes rêves d'adolescent Au printemps de la fleur de l'âge Il y avait le plus souvent Les mains, le corps et le visage D'une femme Plus que femme D'une femme I want to know how you decided to get into the business and become a, a, a camera operator and a cinematographer. I, I started by uh, making pictures when I was at school. And then the problem is pictures, what you do with pictures, not so many things except to put in a, in a boîte à chaussures, in a shoebox, and then that's it. And I, want, what I, I discovered that what I wanted to, to do was shooting. And uh, after that what to do with what you shot, you know. And I, I started to play with a little camera, 9.5 9. millimeter in the family, you know, in the, in the 60s. And uh, I discovered I, I really liked to, to, to shoot with a camera. Then I went to, I, and I went to the um, Louis Lumière School in 64, and I went out in 66. And I, I started my job as a camera assistant, you know. What were some of those early jobs like? What who did you work with? One my um, my uh, I have done one film, uh, which was uh, terriblement gentil de Dirk Sanders, and then with the same producer, my second film, my, my first big film as, as an assistant, you know, was Goto from Borovchik, and so I like that because I knew I have done a film with that producer, and and the operator came brought me uh, to Goto. Then, on Goto, I knew Borovchik, and uh, Borovchik had his own as, um, operator, with, who, who was Guy Durban, and I became assistant of Guy Durban on Goto and Blanche. Then we started shooting Les Contes Moreau. The weather was bad, so we, had, uh, we were late, and the, the, the camera operator, had, uh, the, the, the DOP, had to, to run away. And he said, well, Noel will follow, Noel will continue. And uh, as... Uh, in that time, I started to be a camera operator or a DOP of Valerian Borovchik. And then I follow on the, after the Conzi Moreau, I have done La Marge. It started on La Marge, then Elisabeth Batory, then Lucrez Borgia. And for the other films, I continue as a mostly camera operator. I like The Beast, like uh, Le, Les Heroines du Mal, like La Marge, like, uh, and that's it. And on Jekyll, on Dr. Jekyll, Borovchik told me, I was supposed to do the film as a camera operator, and uh, Borovchik told me, oh, we have a fantastic English DOP, it will be fantastic, formidable, and then, okay, and we started to shoot, and after two days, the English operator, I don't remember the name, uh, said, but the, the, this director is completely crazy, I, went, I, I go out, and he rushed out. And so what to do? And Borovchik said, oh, Noel will do that very well. And, and I became DOP on Dr. Jekyll. What was your working relationship like with Borovchik? Very special. I saw him. I saw him during the films. And when the film finished, 
finished, no, no relationship. In 20 years, he, he, we had lunch home once. That's it. Because uh, editing, my job was finished. Okay, Borovchik was thinking and doing, um, no problem. F- f- the, the next film, he called me, he called me, he used to call me, oh, Noel, we have a film. Okay, I'm coming, and finished. He's strange, but he was a, a very strange man, you know, half crazy, genius crazy, I should say. I should say that. I, I, I've only done 10 films with him, you know. How much preparation would you two plan on before shooting things? Quite nothing, because Borough prepared all things. You know, we know we, we very knew each other and uh, about diffusions, about, uh, you know, the nets or the Harrisons or things. And then and we, we, we had not to prepare. Everything was prepared with Borough because he, he, have done, he, he used to do Everything, all things, like painting the, the, the walls uh, or doing accessories or uh, uh, everything, or, or, or looking at the costumes or everything, he really prepared all things, you know. So I, I can't say I, I had preparation with him. Did he like to work with smaller crews then, just to be able to control more of the aspects of the shoot? Yes, but he had to use a, a minimum, so a machinist, a sound. Once he tried to, to avoid sound... And he asked me, Noel, can't, you, can't, can't we put one mic in the center of the room and, uh, and we, we have no problem with sound people? I said it's difficult. But for my problem, I, I mostly work with Borovchik, with Bernard Ayancourt as a DOP, and uh, me as camera operator, and my assistant, Jean-Pierre Platel, and the second assistant for load, loading the cameras, you know. But when I became uh, director of photography... On L'Arte d'Amare, for example, the last film I've done with him, I took a camera operator because I was DOP. After four days, he told me, no, 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 camera, pas bien, pas bien, camera, no, no, you do the camera, poof. And that's it. Each film was a story, you know, it was quite, quite funny. What was it like working with uh, uh, Luc Besson? You did such wonderful work with him, especially on Subway. Yes, because I, I specialized in 73, I specialized in Steadicam. And uh, I, I've done all the study cam in Subway and was quite happy to, because Luc Besson was very uh, nice director. I worked a lot, uh, a few with on Nikita, but he became uh, insupportable. And then I stopped. But on the Subway, I liked. I, I worked uh, many, many, I've done many, many shots in and this famous uh, w- w- getting down in the stairs in the, in the metro with Michel Galabru was fantastic. You worked with uh, Milos Forman and Valmont. How was that? Fantastic. Fantastic. We had a casting with uh, Miroslav Andricek, and uh, Miroslav Andricek uh, saw me and said, okay, we take this one. And I, really, it's my, uh, one of my best shots I should have done on Steadicam in Valmont. But, but, but we shot with a Panavision, une, une Pana X, which was very heavy, with uh, high aperture uh, scope lenses, which were very heavy too. I had 32 kilos on my Steadicam. For this, for that reason, it's quite stable. You know, it doesn't shake because you can't shake 32 kilos. That's, uh, that's why the shots were. What have been some of your favorite ones to do over the years? Carmen from Francesco Rosi. I liked it. And uh, I couldn't say, you have my complete uh, CV? Every film is nice to do, you know. I like to, to work with uh, Arthur Penn on, on Target. That was wonderful. I like to, to work with that man. That's fantastic. What was your experience like on, uh, and I'm going to butcher the name of this, Belitis, the uh, David Hamilton film? Ah, that was very interesting. 
possibilities. That was very interesting because they, we, we, we had the name, uh, we, we became famous about, because of diffusions, you know. Diffusions and especially uh, La Bête, La Marge, and um, the combination of nets, white nets, black nets, and Harrison's uh, and low contrast and all things, you know. And for that reason, um, David Hamilton uh, called us, Bernard Dayancourt, and me, and I really was in charge with the diffusions with Bernard Dayancourt. I was only camera operator. It was very interesting to, to, to recreate the ambience of this picture, of this photo, still pictures, in a movie. Because David Hamilton have no idea of, uh, of continuity of things, you know. And it was very interesting to have this same diffusion all along the film. For that, it was interesting, except the fact it was in, 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 in July and August in Saint-Tropez, with every, everybody, a full truck of young girls arriving on the set, you know, it was a quite a nice. And we were paid en plus, so... <laughs> and quite <laughs> paradise, no? <laughs> uh, in fact, I worked a lot, and I, I, I think I, I earned a lot of money laughing, which is fantastic. You know, with a marvelous job, I can't complain, you know. I'm retired, actually, but I still teach Steadicam in different schools and here and there, and that's fantastic. Do you have any uh, particular memories of working on La Marge? La Marge. Uh, La Marge was very interesting because um, Sylvia Christel was fantastic. And uh, in fact, when I started Borovchik, with Borovchik on Les Contes Moreau, I took the camera handheld and Borov liked that. And for that reason, I took the place of Guy Durban because the style have changed, you know, handheld camera and all things. And on La Marge, once, Sylvia Christen is giving a phone call to his fiancé, and Borovchik uh, tells me, uh, oh, film, 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 shoot that, shoot that. It's interesting. I take the camera handheld, the, the RIBL at l'époque, the uh, BL4 reflex, 35 millimeter, and uh, I take the camera handheld, and I shoot, and I round the bed. She was under, in the bed, and I shoot, and I round, and I go here and there, and I, I do the whole magazine, the four minutes, you know, um, 300 feet, 300 pieds. And uh, I shoot that, and we see that in projection, and Borovchik says, oh, Noel, we never use the feet, the foot, the tripod. We will never use the tripod again. All, we all shoot handheld. And so I had to invent a support, special support to handheld camera. A partir de ce là since that day, we mostly shot handheld. And that was quite interesting. La Marge was interesting for that, and for the fact that we had two, two different lenses, one, one for the reality and one for when he is in Paris, when, she, when he is in Paris. So it was two, two different styles. But that La Marge was really interesting to, to shoot, you know. I have to tell you that I love your work on The Beast as well. It is such a beautiful film. The Beast is fantastic. The, the light is from Bernard Ayancourt. But I was quite the, I re-saw it last, lastly because we had the film in, uh, in Beaubourg, you know, retrospective at, at Beaubourg, at Pompidou Center. And, uh, c'est vrai que le début, the, we start the film with these horses is quite fantastic. And then we go back to Borovchik, still frames, bien précis, bien, bien organisé, with uh, each detail is important, you know, it's, uh, that's, for, for that, for that it was very impress, interesting to work with Borovchik. Because he was so precise, so uh, <clears throat> the code of, of La Bête was uh, when the, the, um, the priest arrived and La Bête est morte, and uh, he puts uh, some uh, holy water on the beast, and the tail of the beast, boom, move. 
and it was Borovchik with a nail and string, boom, moving. The, but only Borovchik could do that because he is the master. He, he, he was doing all things by himself. But la, 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 the business is, is interesting. What are your memories of working on Le Grand Ceremonial? Le Grand Ceremonial. Ah, uh, very interesting. Very interesting because Pierre-Alain Jolivet was completely crazy. We were near 1968, you know, and it was a very interesting. The revolution was not so far. We, we could do everything. It was May 68. It was, uh, c'était extraordinaire. I, 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 I went out of school in 66, in 66. So in 68, we had May 68, the big revolution and all things. And, uh, I saw in Festival de Cannes the new film from Serge Avanissius about Godard. Uh, I saw that film recently in Festival de Cannes. It's fantastic. I, I, I had the impression to be in, in 68, in the revolution, we stopped the Cannes Festival, we, we, we create a new world, it was, we were dreaming, but it was fantastic. And Le Grand Ceremonial was in that mood, in that mood of uh, everything was possible, you know. Yeah, I well, I'm a, a, a great admirer of uh, Fernando Arabal, so I, yeah. I uh, have tried to watch everything that is based on his work or that he's been involved with, and that movie is just incredible. Oh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it must be 40 years I didn't see it. Because, <laughs> you know, we technicians, we do films, but after we have done a film, we do another film. And then another film, we don't see films. Actually, I'm retired, so I can see, again, some films I've done in the old time, but not so, not so much, you know. I'm still teaching static, I'm and modifying static, I'm and working on cameras and things like that. I'm... You have two worlds, you know. You have the people in the people from the camera before the film go out, and people after. They look at the film. They are critics. They are. It's another, another people. You know, it's other. It's different. How did uh, did video affect you over the years? When did you have to make a switch at one point between working with film and working with video? I am one of the few people which who can say about the difference between video and film. Nothing. Nothing because I mostly finish my work with a Steadicam and as a camera operator. So my prop for me, the film is a story, and the actors tell the story to the camera. I am camera operator, so they tell me the story. Which, if it's film, video, or something else, I don't care. Assistant push the button on. I don't even sometimes don't know how do you put the camera on. For me, it changed nothing. I'm camera operator. I put the actor in the rectangle, looking in the right position and saying his, his words. So I can say, as I, I didn't, the only thing last time I had some films to do, some, I could not, I, I, it should be for me difficult to be DOP with a, with a, with a video because it changed a lot. But well, I've, I, I, I worked mostly as camera operator, so for me, nothing stupid but uh, efficace no I, I like your attitude <laughs> <laughs> it changed a lot for the for DOP for uh, DOP or assistance for me I don't care more fou. <laughs> I just said the camera from here to there just manage thank you so much for your time this has been really a pleasure talking to you okay you're welcome bye bye <laughs>
What did you want to be when you grew up? I really wanted to be everything because I thought everything was so beautiful out there and so much to learn, so much to do, so much to think about. Imagine the kind of world that, that we grew up in, some of us back there in the good old days, before we were in the modern period of social media and internet and when you had to do everything yourself, when you actually had to go to libraries to uh, look up information or go to museums to see paintings. Everything was just so exciting. How did you go about pursuing everything? <laughs> well, what do, what do people do? You know, they, they want to do, they want to travel, they want to study, they want to meet people. So I ran into a few good, really, teachers who uh, had innovative ways of teaching. For example, I studied film under somebody who was supposed to be teaching us about French history and literature and uh, decided the best way to teach history was through film rather than through the classic textbooks and historical documents. So that was really exciting. That guy was just a graduate student, but he was even more interesting than the professor who was supposed to be the big guy who taught the courses. And around where did you grow up at? I grew up in Minneapolis, which was a pretty cool place to grow up, rather beautiful, and we had a very thriving music scene in those days, and still do. How long did you stay in Minneapolis? Where did you go? Well, until I went out east to go to university, I was pretty much in Minneapolis, except for a, a year in France, where I studied um, in French school, because my parents decided it was a good idea to uh, learn French in France and learn about French culture and history. So I'm curious, how did you get involved in the film business? To tell you the truth, it really was that professor I had which was teaching French literature and history through film. I tried to take some film courses where I was studying, but they really didn't have much in the way of cinema. It wasn't considered a serious thing to study back in the in those days. So I went to London Film School in the 70s, which is where that moment the transition was being made from the California style of teaching through UCLA and so forth and uh, Southern California and places like that to the National Film School, which was just being created in, in England, and the London Film School, which was more of a, you might say, a group workshop type of atmosphere rather than, than a top-down teaching institution. Were there any particular films that really kind of lit your fire when you were in school? Yeah, there were lots. You know, the... The films of Marcel Carnet, like uh, Children of Paradise, the um, Battle of Algiers, the Orson Welles movies, Bergman, eventually, Wim Wenders, Werner Herzog. Just about everybody was doing all kinds of amazing stuff. I'd say it was a period of innovation at, at that time because people were still trying to discover where you can go with film. For example, uh, Alain René, his experimental films, which today maybe don't look very experimental, but David Mercer's script on Providence and Rene's writing and filmmaking were, were extremely, um, they were quite shocking in those days. There was a, a, an idea that you could decouple sound from image for the first time, remembering that the way films were put together in those days was through the, the moviola and through the separate sound and picture, the magnetic soundtrack and the optical film before it was even married onto the same single piece of perforated cellulose where you actually had to hold the film and, and stick it in one side and make sure you got it synced up right every time. It was a lot of temptation to play around and do strange things, and film students did that all the time. Well, there were so many different different schools and, and uh, 
ideas about about what film ought to be. There was no real consensus as to what needed to be done and how it was to be done. I think people saw a film uh, to some extent because of the difference between the kind of character psychological study that the that the French uh, and the Germans were doing, and to some extent in Eastern Europe, versus some of the classical uh, ideas of, of American cinema and Hollywood, which were which was also in transition as before the independence took hold. The idea was that you could possibly study memory and study the mind and study fantasy and and imagination through film more effectively than through some kind of scientific research project in a psychological laboratory with rats and pigeons. What kind of school was the the British school? Was it more of a filmmaking or a film theory? (laughs) It was actually hardcore filmmaking taught by people who were in the business. And the the difference was um, they believed that everybody, like in a French kitchen, had to know how to do everything, that you couldn't go there to be a director. You couldn't be a, a cameraman. You had to... You had to take turns, so there were six different films over a two-year period, and and each one you you had to learn to work together with people from different cultures, different countries, uh, different um, aspirations, and and the, and the idea was to throw us together and let us fight it out. And sometimes we got along, and sometimes we didn't, and that was that was the idea. And when I got back to uh, the states and thought, well, I'll see what Hollywood thinks of. My background, having gone to film school, they just—they were just like, "No way, get out of here!" They're a bunch of socialists over there. Yeah, I guess that was true, really, which was okay with me. So, when you're back in Hollywood, were you getting any gigs at all, or how was that like? You know, it was interesting, and I tried doing a few things, tried to do some writing and some pilot projects, things like that. But it really wasn't nearly as attractive as the idea of going back to where I felt that I had a had some um, connection with the French style of uh, European style of filmmaking. Of course, at, at our film school, we had people like uh, Mike Lee and Les Blair teaching us, so it was already a different, a different feeling of what film could be. And there, you worked in smaller crews, and you were expected to know how to perform these different jobs. So when I first started working with Baraji, for example, I mean, I could just sit in the cutting room and watch him, watch him edit for hours without probably saying a word, but some other day he might just say, here's a tape recorder, go on out and see what, what you can record on the banks of the set. We might use it in this one of these films we're doing or something like that. There was that sort of expectation, which I found really exciting. Yeah, how did you meet Pravchek? Oh, he was showing his films at various festivals and uh, was on the jury at the Oberhausen Film Festival. He had shown um, Blanche and Goto at the London Film Festival and was well received, and I had never seen anything quite like it. And then it turned out by by coincidence that he had a desire to help young aspiring filmmakers, which not every director and filmmaker does. And so I just managed to badger him long enough until he he and Dominique Duverger, his producer, said, "Okay, you can come and and uh, work on the Immoral Tales." So that was shortly thereafter, shortly after Blanche, right? What kind of stuff did you do when you were working with him? Pretty much whatever whatever he needed. And I was an assistant to him rather than being in a formal crew capacity that you might recognize. And so if he needed some um, somebody to, to play a particular role in a film, he wanted to go out and take a walk and get some ideas and talk about them. If he was looking at a prop and wanted to go to a 
to a museum to compare styles of art and art history. This is the kind of thing that, that he was open to, and then we would work on that together. But generally, it was the trivial, quiet, sitting there for hours and hours just watching, where I'd hold a trim and he'd ask for it. I'd pick up another trim from the back and, and he would exchange. And after hours of hearing the same scene, I realized the kind of precision that he had and the kind of knowledge of certainty of what he, what he was trying to accomplish. And that was really exciting for me. He seemed to have a real affinity to, and I'm going to butcher the name, to the works of uh, Mendigares. André Pierre de Mondiag. Yes, they were actually very close friends. They spent a lot of time together. I wasn't usually present at those meetings, but they were very unusual. I guess the uh, diversity of of taste, of knowledge, of context was, was pretty strong between those two, so that they believed in the power of, of an object, and they believed in the power of, of history and the importance of, of history and, and previous people who had made contributions in the arts over the years, that that should not something that should, we should let go of. And so there was always this context in, that made all of his work, um, I would say both of them, are, are rich in historical metaphor and, and uh, reference, artistic, cultural, um, literary, scientific, all of it was was fair game, and they they just loved it. I mean, you couldn't walk down the street with um, Valerian without his pointing to a, uh, an architectural monument or or some plaque on the street and and making a comment about it and saying how um, with some humor what what's going to happen to it in the future. France was really in transition in those days, as, as was the as was all of Europe and the, the end of the great post-war economies, which marked everybody. When you're communicating with him, I know that you have spent a year in France. Are you talking to him in French or to English, or did you pick up Polish? How was that? Always in French, and he enjoyed the fact that I couldn't speak perfect French, and nor could he. And so we, that was kind of a source of um, amusement for both of us. How did a private collection come about? I mean, it's so interesting to have these filmmakers working together who are so diverse but are doing such great work all at the same time. I wasn't part of that project myself, and so I can't tell you exactly, but we know that you can see the hand of Henri Pierre de Mondiag, both physically and, and metaphorically in, in, the, um, in the collection itself. And naturally, uh, the other collection would be would include objects that Valerian had collected over the years as well. He liked the idea of the physicality of the image in a, in an object. An object makes noise. An object can move or not. An object changes depending on the light you put on it or or not. And what's revealed and what's concealed. I mean, he was always talking about that and showing it and giving examples. Can you tell me what it was like working on the Streetwalker, La Marche? Well, it was a, a different kind of project because, as you know, the film was supposed to take place in Spain, and that's where the book by André Pierre de Mondiag was, was, was set, was in, in Spain. And so the need was to very quickly, once permission was obviously refused for making the film in Spain, as a parenthesis, the the book by de Mondiag is ferociously, viciously anti-Franco. And you can imagine the reaction that that would have had in the immediate uh, 
end of Franco period. <laughs> but working with um, on that film, uh, since we had both Joe D'Alessandro and Sylvia Christel, there was a need for someone who could be present all the time with those actors so that they could have what they needed and to keep them engaged and keep them and maybe go over some scenes with them, do some and and be sure and translate everything that went between uh, Mr. Borovchik and and uh, Joe D'Alessandro, for example, because Joe didn't speak French really. He spoke some Italian and Valerian didn't speak English except for a few words. This perhaps gives the film some of its qualities successful, almost like a silent film. The poetic use of film um, of film imagery with with music and and rhythm and editing, because of the desire to almost minimize language in some cases. But it was fantastic working with him. I felt that my job was to be very much like one of the characters in the film, which happens to be um, a dog named. Wolf. I mean, it was named Wolf in real life, and so I became uh, <laughs> I became Wolf. So that uh, my job was to come wherever I was, when whenever he called, and just be there and do whatever whatever he wanted me to do. Yeah, it's unusual to watch that movie today and to hear all those songs that are so familiar as oldies and to have them worked into the movie the way that they are. It's just like, oh, what is this Elton John song doing here? But I love the way that he uses that and the Pink Floyd and the other musicians to to bolster the way that the story is told. I love that, too. And at the time, as you can imagine, these were, were very popular songs. And it shows kind of the distinction between the music of of um, this futuristic age that was that was already beginning and the nostalgia for what was being lost. You could see many of the characters anchored still in the past and in that music of the past because of the way the, the music is shown in the film and what it signifies and what happens when it starts and when it ends and how it transitions to the modern music and goes back to the uh, this struggle going back to the earlier music. And you see the struggle playing, playing out quite literally, visually and musically which I think is one of the exciting things about the film without giving away too much for people who haven't seen it. I'm curious, what was it like working with D'Alessandro and Christelle? My job was primarily with Joe, and it was really an adventure in trying to do something which at first glance was unlikely. The the idea that, that he would be cast as a as someone from the what they call La France Profonde, the idyllic uh, deep, France that is a France of tradition and culture. That's the character he represents, and yet he has these animal-like qualities, which makes his performance very physical, and which I think is something that uh, Valerian wanted to bring out. Of course, in the original, the Joe D'Alessandro character, Sigismond, is literally compared to a to a fox by Sergine, who is played by Mireille Audibert in the film. But the, the fact that Valerian takes what is a person offers whatever whatever that may be, and he works with it as if it were clay that is being sculpted and, and shaped and molded. He doesn't work with it by changing the person or changing the, the acting of the person so much, in my opinion, as by working the film, changing the film and molding the film around what he wants from that character so that in order to make the film work at successive levels, 
as a film close to surrealism at moments and, and symbolic and full of imagery, but also a simple tale, a simple, strange kind of love story in two two different portraits of two different characters. The ability to do that and adapting on spontaneously, really, from a script which is so detailed that every shot is worked out in his head, and, and even the editing is somewhat worked out in his head in advance, that's quite a feat that requires constant ability to uh, communicate the changing needs of the of the script and of the of the scene the the obviously the original story set in Spain and the 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 next set when it was going to be in France the original script is quite different from the script that finally was produced and the film that was finally produced and edited so we just had to be present and be on our toes all the time and deal with what Valerian wanted to achieve under the circumstances when he discovered something interesting then he he would work that into the into the script what was he like to work with as far as um his relationship to actors everyone will give you a different idea in some ways he was was extremely demanding and like many filmmakers a demanding filmmaker is under a lot of constraints because you want to do something as close to your idea of perfection as possible and of course because of the budget and because of the shooting schedule and the crew's availability and the actor's availability, you have to make a lot of, lot of concessions. So he was extremely compassionate and yet extremely, uh, demanding and in some ways had an, a very firm presence on the set. So what he said goes, which I think was something that everybody needed to, to adjust to because everyone is working with individual constraints as well. And sometimes, you know, Joe would just say, I can't, I can't say this line, to which I would say, but it's in French. And he would say, it doesn't matter. I want to be able to say it in French properly and have the right action with, with the face and the mouth and the body language and the hand gestures. And so occasionally, uh, even though Valerian didn't want to hear this, we would have a conference. And more often than not, Valerian would say, well, go back and see what you guys can come up with and then present it to me because he always wanted to be presented with whatever it is that was going on, whether it's a prop, whether it's the, the flowers, the mimosas that you see in the early love scenes with between Joe and uh, Mireille back in France, in, in the south of France, whether it's that or the uh, articles on the bedspread or, or shapes in the texture of the wallpaper and so forth in any of the rooms in Paris. He, he wanted to be presented with options from his various assistants. I never would have thought that Joe was speaking French in that. When I watch the movie now, that's not really his voice, though, is it? Most, it depends on what version you're watching. Most of the, most of the versions have dubbed him almost totally out. Some versions, uh, it might be just his laugh that is unmistakably Joe. And then a couple others, you might hear some of his, um, of his actual French. You might find it interesting that in some scenes you hear French being spoken with uh, an American accent and others it's a perfect French accent so you know it's not they're not both Joe I just remember his performance in things like the um, Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula where it's this very proper you know setting and he's got that thick like New York accent and it just really kind of throws you out of it so I was like wow I, I I, I figured they would always dub him on set, but interesting. Okay. 
But that's a great point because look at the way Joe is dressed in, in La Marge. He's sometimes the streetwalker, as it's called here, or the margin, as it's called elsewhere. Look at the way he's dressed impeccably with, with his Cartier watch and his expensive suit and absolutely clean white shirt. And yet, uh, at other times, you know, you see him just, uh, walking down the street still well dressed, but the mingling with the, with the underclass. And of course, it's, it's helpful to the story and to the kind of contrast that Valerian is so fond of showing that the street walkers, the, the uh, hookers are making fun of Joe sometimes because he's so well dressed uh, as if he's in like the Hotel George Sank, they talk about, you know, making fun of fun of him and also of Sylvia's character, Diana. And yet you can see that the same kind of difficult relationship occurs among and between the hookers and and with their with their strange uh compassionate yet violent head pimp, you know, the guy who's known in the script as the mustachu, the mustache man, but who in the final version of course doesn't have <laughs> never mustache. So you see this kind of uh paradox where where there people are, are are there's compassion and people get along together because they have to and they have nothing and yet they're all competing with each other in this underclass of the of the prostitutes where they uh, for example in the scene where I can say this without spoiling the film too, where a hat falls off, is blown off in the wind and rolls along the ground and Sylvia picks it up and hands it back to the guy. And that begins one of the most dynamic and uh, poetic, I think, scenes of the film, mostly silent, where it's a battle of the bands, you might call it. Looking at uh, Valerian's work, it seems like he worked with the same crew quite a bit, especially, well, I know Noel Verri, uh, his cinematographer, but uh, was that pretty much true for a lot of the positions behind the camera as well? Yes, very much so. I think he knew that it was difficult to get to understand how Valerian works and that it was also important to have people who could react very quickly and do what needed to be done without being given many instructions. And the, I'd say the crew grew with him as well. Both that was true of the actors too, that he often took actors before they had been, been, uh, recognized as really important actors in the cinema. He started out with them when they had done very little or nothing. But with the crew, he really had a way of developing a, a lighting style, a camera style. And of course, with Noel Vitti, who, who, uh, innovated the whole idea of the handheld camera with a steady cam and developed that with, with over the years with tremendous success as a real pioneer. I mean, people like, um, Dominique Duverger, his, his, uh, producer going all the way back to his early days arriving from Poland into France, you know, he was successful in finding people who were at the top of the field and who wanted to keep working with him his costume designers, his, his, uh, set decorators and all that were, were just really top-notch. What was your favorite experience working with uh, Borovchek? <laughs> it's difficult to find a favorite experience. I'd just say being able to take a walk with him down the street and have him point to an ATM machine and tell me that there's a little man hiding in there who's going to hand out the change. Don't don't believe it anything when they tell you it's a machine. It's not. <laughs> or when he goes to a hardware store 
because he thinks that's the most fun thing you can do. I said, you want to go to a movie? No, I, let's go to the hardware store. <laughs> and and he would look at some tool and think, oh, I could do something with this, go down in the basement and, and just be lost in this world of objects and almost imagination and go home and maybe work on a sculpture because it was that holistic concept of, of art, film, literature, everything going together, history, uh, even politics, because he was not a person who would openly express himself politically, but there's some very, very intense political feeling that comes out in conversations with him as well as in his films. Well, it depends on what you define as how you define work, because uh, I guess I worked on six films with him, but also over the years, we, um, as we became friends, we exchanged ideas and and sent each other humorous notes and and met together and met with producers to try and develop films as as he did with some other collaborators of his and so uh it went pretty much until until his death so it was a, it was over a long period but when i was back in the states there were there was there were long periods when we didn't have much contact did you happen to work with him when he was doing um Emmanuel 5 no not at all I've heard different stories as far as how much he was involved, how much he wasn't involved. So I was hoping to get the scoop on that. But Well, you have to think of his relationship to his producers and to the authorities, if you want to put it in a more general way. He was uh, very conscious of the edge, the tension between what is permissible and what isn't permissible and the kind of hypocritical, arbitrary definitions of sexuality, permissible sexuality in the cinema and of uh, of the producers who would sit down and, and look at works of art and, and reminisce about some beautiful visit they made to to a, a museum in Rome, watching, you know, looking at sculptures and so forth, and as the, then at the same time tell him he's got to have more overt sexuality in the films. So he, he kind of was both, uh, he worked with that, he resisted it in a kind of creative resistance. In Lamarge, there are at least two scenes where characters are rubbing eggs on one another. Well, actually, that's probably one of the most significant images in the whole film. And that goes back to the friendship between de Mondiard and Borovchik. In the film, the egg is everywhere. There's an egg around the iconic portraits, the, the angelic lighting around pictures of Jesus. There's an egg uh, representing uh, an egg with fins would be the bomb in the war to to the the uh, Spanish Civil War and with Franco, there are uh, everything, practically everything is an egg. The egg is almost like uh, anticipating Kubrick's 2001. The egg is where you float in a bubble. The bubble is, is what the margin is. The bubble is is the world in which the filmmaker lives and, and struggles and, and is in a way isolated and yet has complete communion and control with his with his art and his medium so i would say the egg is reduced quite a bit in the final version of the film but but it was uh, a very important scene to both Borovchik and and de Mondiard. so you you did you, you see it on an important image and it's fun to think that where we can just look at the film and enjoy it as a tale at the same time you can go down to almost frame by frame and and get as much out of it as you care to. 
you talked about that tension between how much you show and how much you don't show. Did he ever get into trouble with censors? All the time. He loved it. That was one of the one of his um, the battles that he he really cherished. <laughs> and he and his producers, especially Anatole Dumont, who was um, quite an amazing character, about whom much more could be said in in another setting. And I'm sure people will be writing and talking about him. But they um, they realized once again the what they called the hypocrisy and and arbitrary uh, limitations on expression in censorship. And if you think about growing up in in a very authoritarian Poland under the communist rule, and then going to live in France where you expect things to be very much open and so forth, and in a France where where sexuality is is um, openly discussed and, and permitted, you see the same kind of of arbitrary definitions. You know, is it an artist, a filmmaker who's going to decide what's what's permitted and what isn't, or or is it some, as he would say, a bureaucrat sitting in an office somewhere with some uh, political connection? And that's where the fun began. Over the recent years, you've worked a lot on the scholarship of Barovchek's work. I know that you helped uh, or that you translated um, his short stories, uh, Anatomy of the Devil. How has that been to kind of revisit these works after all these years and, and to help bring the the name Barovchek back to the lips of, of some younger film scholars and younger film fans that might not be familiar with his work? I'm sad because I wish that I had taken advantage of the opportunities of being with a genius like that and asked a lot more and and tried to bring him out a lot more. But, it, of course, he was delighted to simply um, keep it at the level that it was. So that there is that sadness about not having been mature enough at the time to take full advantage of it. And there's a joy in knowing that there's always so much more to discover and that it does seem to have survived the test of time as many works on multiple levels do. And what's keeping you busy these days? I guess if we're talking about what's going on right now, we're under a time when across the world, well, a friend of mine sent me a T-shirt that said, human rights have no borders. And uh, I guess that's really true. Things that we took for granted for many years, that, that torture is unacceptable, that hospitals can't be bombed by governments, that people can't be assassinated and executed without um, due process. We're coming in a, into a period when they have been there for a while where many of these gains in the field of human rights are under threat. And I used to have arguments with, with Borovcik about the effectiveness of working on human rights and, and <laughs> he thought basically that governments won't change, that, that corruption is, in, is so institutionalized and endemic that um, he, he, that's why he preferred filmmaking as a technique, and I, I tended to want to be out in the field and, and doing human rights activism and research. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a real pleasure, and there are so many wonderful people associated with Borovcik that that's been one of the great joys in uh, keeping these projects going, thanks to people like like Daniel Bird and, and Dominique Duvere-Secretin and others. And, of course, Noel Vey, who's always a joy to be with.
All right, we are back and we we're talking about Lamarge. Now, Daniel, can you tell me what you've been working on when it comes to Borovchek? Uh, are you ready to speak about that? This year, as I've mentioned, was was a, a big year in many ways because it was the, the culmination of a project which has been going on for quite some time, and that was a retrospective at the Pompidou Center with um, a French version of the Camera Obscura box, which we worked on with Arrow uh, three years ago now, and also uh, the release of the Olive films of the early Borowczyk films, and the Arrow release of Story of Sen and the Polish short films, which came out in the UK and the US, all this happened in a two-month period. In addition to that, with the season, the uh, association, uh, which I co-founded with Dominique uh, Segretan and her son, uh, Abel, and Borovchik's godson, we published uh, with the Pompidou Center and Carlotta a, uh, a book called Boro, Valerian Borovchik, which is in fact four books in a slipcase which was to uh, see the wood from the trees, so to speak, an overview of Borovchik's work, and to place the films in the context of his graphics, his sculptures, to place as much emphasis on the short films and animations as the features. And uh, so finally, this is kind of, it was published bilingual in English and French, and it's getting English distribution now. Uh, we're doing a, a launch at the Horse Hospital in London, on August the 2nd, and uh, then uh, we're kind of making this available uh, to people uh, outside of France. So if you are interested in acquiring this book, the best way is to check on the Friends of Valerian Borovchik Facebook page, which will give details of how to get a copy. August 2nd, that is the day that this episode drops. Holy cow, what a what a weird coincidence. What a fantastic coincidence. <laughs> it was in the stars. It's a good day for Borovchik fans. I have seen a little promo piece that you put together for this book series, and it looks amazing. The whole thing with the book was, I'm always wary I mean, of this idea of uh, a last work, of, of closing something. It's really more of a, uh, uh, a kind of a report of where we are now. And things have changed a lot in the last five years. A lot of the key films are now back in distribution on Blu-ray in the UK, the US and France. Uh, we've made available Borovchik's fiction, uh, The Anatomy of the Devil, uh, which was in the Camera Obscura box, with Borovchik's original illustrations, which were never commercially available. We published Borovchik's children's book, which he made around the same time in the early 1990s, but he never published in his lifetime. So all of these things have, I think, changed the way in which uh, Borovchik, certainly the second half of his career, is perceived uh, the way that he didn't kind of fizzle out and burn out. He just basically thought, okay, I don't have access to make the films I want, therefore I'll apply all my energies into graphics, uh, experiment with fiction, and uh, and I think also some of the graphics in the in the film are really interesting in relationship to not just the animations but his conception of film in general. He did a lot of kind of serial paintings, so you know uh, images in sequences. So four images on a single piece of paper, is, which is a bit like a comic strip, uh, but it also suggests motion. So you know it really raises all sorts of questions about the distinction between works on paper and film. And and I think that for me personally is 
really what Borovchik is interesting and why he's interesting. It's not really the story of the, the, the animator who ended up in porn. That's bullshit. It's really, this is the guy who was a pioneer at the interface of film and the fine arts. Long before David Lynch, long before Peter Greenaway, uh, long before people like Steve McQueen, and it was Borovchik really picking up uh, a dialogue which had started in the 1920s uh, with various kind of avant-garde artists in France and Germany and taking it in a, a new direction, uh, particularly in terms of sound, sound effects, music, and consequently inspiring a whole generation of filmmakers, more mainstream characters like Neil Jordan and Terry Gilliam, like we've acknowledged, uh, photographers and fine artists like Craigie Horsfield, who appears on the, the Go to Island of Love release, both in the UK and the US, uh, Andrzej Klimowski, the poster artist and, and on one occasion an animator who uh, appears on the Story of Sin release. And, you know, if you know, if you know Faber books during the 1980s or, or Maitland McDonough's book on Dario Argento, you'll know Andrzej's graphics and his approach towards collage and photo montage. So, Borovchik really looms as a presence above this whole range of people. And, and I think that's his rightful place. You know, he's one of those people, you know, it's a bit like the end of Quatermass in the Pit, the way that he's, he's influenced people by <laughs> proxy and they've not even realized it. And, you know, that became the story in effect with uh, the Goto Island of Love Kickstarter campaign. The story which wasn't my idea at all, but the, the media story was this was the guy that influenced or inspired the Monty Python animations. And of course, those animations have gone on to inspire countless other things. So I think that the perception of Borovchik has changed as from a tragic case of a once talented person being reduced to working in the peripheries of whatever you want to call it uh, to someone else. And uh, I think we're all uh, passionately arguing about what exactly his contribution was and what position his work has in the visual culture, sound culture, you know, because I mean, even two years ago in London, there were there were there was a concert inspired by the sounds of Borovchik. So, you know, it's not limited to cinema. And uh, and I think this is an interesting example of a an artist which has been dead for over 10 years, still being contemporary, because for a long time, you know, even though critics fought to pigeonhole him, uh, to put him in a box, Borovchik has escaped the box. And I think that's what's so great about Bertrand Mandico's film, which is inspired by Borovchik. Not only does Bertrand kind of respond to Borovchik's work in a visual way, the title suggests, you know, this paradox. Boxes, frames are an integral part of Borovchik's work, but paradoxically, he suffered from being pigeonholed and boxed. And really his work, you know, it, it is incapable of classification. And uh, now we're in a position where people, rather than kind of like huffing and puffing and about, you know, not being able to place him in the genre of animation or film or, or, or sex exploitation or whatever. It's embracing this, this kind of aspect, which, uh, is, um, you know, it, it really is exciting. So I think that that, that, that book and, and those programs, uh, and those DVDs 
they're all opening debates rather than closing them. And they're debates which I hope will continue. And it's great to actually be having conversations like this and uh, to listening to, to Sam's pod, uh, podcast with, uh, with Kat Ellinger to read writings of a whole range of people, Kila Janice and uh, House of Psychotic Women, taking Borotic's films in a whole range of directions. It's, you know, it, it's the only regret I have is the fact that Borotic, you know, if he'd lived 10 or 12 more years, he would have actually witnessed this kind of opt-in of interest in his work. But sadly, that wasn't the case. I have a gun that I was going to put to my head like Sigmund, but I'm going to put it to your head and say you have to choose your favorite Borovchek film. What is it? Uh, the Angels Games, the animation he made in 64, without a doubt. How about you, Sam? I think if, if you're holding a gun to my head, I mean, I'm not typically one for being able to choose favorites, but I think this is it. I am a Borovchek noob, so I'm curious where to go next. I would say go to the animations uh not necessarily because they're better it's just that i think that when you look at the animations and the short films it changes your perception of the later work i think that if you come to the later films uh without having seen a lot of the earlier stuff the perception will, will be different i think that uh, the the short films and early features are a good way of uh signaling what to look out for and uh, what to enjoy and uh, i think that that's um that that was the whole point of the camera obscura box which we did with arrow the fact that you know it wasn't a dividing line with the moral tales it wasn't that was it's a dialectic you know the two halves define one another uh so yeah look i i, I would strongly that in in the u.s there's the olive um short films disc and there's the theater of mr and mrs cabal release and goto and blanche uh, and i think that that is a good you know that's a it's a bedrock and a, and a framework to perceive some of the later films well i do have a uh, a dvd of goto that i picked up from a kickstarter that was held recently the arrow campaign which was the basically uh arrow were, were you know arrow were incredible in, in, in terms of a partner because we, we did go to lots of people around europe with the idea of um, rehabilitating Borovchik and a lot of people liked the idea uh, but didn't really were, were still uncomfortable because his reputation was such that you know I, I think some people were didn't want to risk being associated with a filmmaker who had this 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 porn stigma attached to him and in the case of Poland nobody even bothered responding to the correspondence Arrow basically went with it, um, but of course they said, "Well, okay, we'll 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 take the risk with Blanche, with Cabal, and the short films, and the Beast and and the Moral Tales were restored by the French distributor, uh, the French producer rather." But there was this problem with Goto. Uh, but for both me and Michael Brooke, who was the co-producer on the the Camera Obscura set, it was such a crucial title because Goto was not just the first film, it was the culmination of all these ideas which Borrow had explored in the short films over a 10-year period, you know, from, from the years dating in Poland, like with the school and things like that. So it was imperative to have this restored. And, uh, and Arrow suggested, well, Kickstarter. So, you know, it was a, a great film to uh, spearhead a reevaluation of Borowczyk, to to remember him. Not just for films like The Beast and the Moral Tales, because they always had an audience, but for a film like Goto, which 
you know, was a genuine cult film. It was a, a title which was always mentioned, and you could see it. There was a, a good cult epics DVD in the US and a Nouveau Pictures one in the UK. It had played on Australian TV. But the problem was it was always this kind of so-so copy, sometimes with color inserts and sometimes without. But really, it was um, by the time it was properly restored from the surviving elements, the negative incidentally had been destroyed in a fire. So we were working from uh, two interpositives. It was quite something. And I, I'm really I'm really pleased that that film became the focal point of the whole campaign. And uh, so, yeah, Goto, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great place to start. It's a very strange film. It's very hermetic. It had clearly been on Barovchik's mind for a good 10 years. It might strike some people as a bit cold. It's very much a counterpoint to Limoges because Goto is like so rigorous, so formal. But I think Limoges is this moment when he really starts to be more free form, looser. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just an artist who's fully in command of his craft and, you know, actually has precise ideas but doesn't necessarily feel the need to kind of plan them in advance with military precision and is capable of embracing spontaneity. I mean, Noel Ferry, I, I don't know if he mentions this in the interview, but he, he always used to say and, and in the interviews I'd done with him that there was a crucial moment when Sylvia Christel was, was on, on the phone to a boyfriend at the time and he said to Noel, start filming, start filming. And without the tripod and send the tripod back to the, the, the suppliers. We don't need the tripod anymore. So there was this looser, quicker, spontaneous approach to filming on location, cheaper, faster, more impulsive. And, you know, I guess you could compare it in some strange way with Von Trier's work in the way that his early films like The Element of Crime, you know, are so planned, precise, schemed. And then when you come to films like Breaking the Waves, uh, The Idiots, uh, and things like that, it's this spontaneity, this this kind of like rejecting this 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 kind of uh, formality in favor of looking for the moment. Um, the irony is, is that I think you have to, as a filmmaker, go through that. Pro it's like the John Cage thing with learning classical music before you can reject it. I think you have to go through that kind of rigor before you can do something interesting with this kind of. Uh, seemingly effortless handheld camera work and Lamarche in many ways, you know, this is the, this is the moment when Barovchik shifts, you know, all, all films like Blanche and had been shot in the studio that several of the episodes for moral tales have been shot in the studio. Um, but in the case of, you know, Lamarche, it's a much more looser impulsive and it's got some great stuff in there. I think you can see that sort of relationship also in Dr. Jekyll, where he, he shoots things more similarly to the style that is in Lamarge, where it's still very painterly, but I don't know. I think I, I would agree with you that it's just this like sudden shift, but in a beautiful way. There is a weird thing with Dr. Jekyll and the way that he saw Sir Henry at Rawlinson end um, the film based on Vivian Stanchel's radio play at the Oxford um, Film Festival, and he started to make 
Dr. Jekyll, not just with Patrick McGee, who'd been in that film, but also the cinematographer, Martin Bell. And you can see certain scenes in Dr. Jekyll, particularly the opening sequence, which have a very different look to the rest of the film. It's on a tripod. It's um, less diffusion. And uh, and I spoke to Martin Bell, who's, who's now based in New York, uh, and he said it was completely amicable, but it was simply a question of time. Barovchik wanted to shoot quickly, and he realized that he wasn't going to be able to complete the film uh, with the shooting style of Martin Bell. And it was nothing, it was not, it was not the usual artistic differences. It was more a time and practicality thing. So, you know, that is an interesting example of the way that you do have. I mean, if you look at the opening sequences, the opening sequence to that film and the rest of the way it's shot, it is an interesting example of two different cinematographers. Uh, approach to the same film. Um, you know, I think that also it's that later film throughout the 1970s, Noel worked as the camera operator for uh, David Hamilton in his kind of films at the second half of the 70s. David Hamilton, of course, is the, the photographer who likes shooting uh, young girls in a very idealistic way. On the one hand, it's important. I mean, that now looks very dated and a bit sleazy and kitsch, but it was a big deal in the 1970s, and David Hamilton was hugely popular. Um, but it really, I think as a viewer, it really depends how you respond to that aesthetic uh, of that kind of diffusion, that soft look, um, which Noel brought to that, uh, the look of those later Borovchik films, along with the cinematographer, Bernard Dionkov. Whether you kind of... Um, embrace that or uh, uh, appreciate it in the context and the time it was made. Um, I think that really, really is kind of instrumental of uh, how you actually kind of uh, accept those later Barovchik films. Or, you know, I mean, I can I totally appreciate why someone might dismiss them as catch because, I mean, that that look, that soft-focused look, is, um, it's, it's dated, I think, more than some of the earlier films. And I think Lamarge is... is is at the border between those two looks. Uh, there is definitely diffusion filters used in that film, but they're nowhere near as extreme as, say, The Art of Love uh, in the early 1980s. So, you know, it, it's it's really a work of transition. And I think it, even though it has all of these production problems which are reflected in the edits, it's got some absolute pure Barovchik moments in terms of ideas, humor, emotion, and uh, yeah, it would be wonderful to have a great copy of Lamage available to screen in cinemas or on Blu-ray or DVD. But uh, sadly, that's still some time off. But I hope it happens. I hope it happens, too. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. <laughs> Theater goer, you. Welcome to uh, behind the scenes, as it were. <laughs> I'd like to introduce myself. I'm D.O.A. Berg, producer of fine films. That's right. And if I may, I would like very much for uh, some of you folk out there to meet some of the people that are to blame. For, uh, I'm sorry. I mean that are responsible for this film. We're going to show you some scenes from. <laughs> Excuse me. First, of course. Like to have you meet the writer. And of course, without the writer, there would be an overabundance of paper. 
The writer. The man we all respect probably more than anyone else in the picture business. And this is our writer, D.T. Stronghold. Hello, Mr. Bird. I, I love you, great producer. And of course, where would we all be if it weren't for the director? Yes, the mighty director. Schwein, can't you see I'm creating? Oh, it's you, Mr. Bird. It's a pleasure to have you on the set. Oh, I broke both my Oh. Ah, they're all uh, strange. But here, here is our star, the man who will deliver us from TV. And once again, having the theaters bursting with laughter. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Go ahead, Jerry. Show us some of the funny things that uh, we've been talking about that are in this picture. Go ahead, Jared. Some of them kind of stiffen up a little when you ask them to ad lib. <laughs> Thanks, anyhow. Come with me. I'll show you myself. Yes, indeed, this will be much easier. You'll see some of the scenes and, uh, well, roll it. Go on. Bellboy, filmed completely in fabulous Miami, where Bellboy Jerry turns the fantastic Fontainebleau Hotel into his own private madhouse, tangling with the bags and the babes. Those beautiful Miami models in the altogether delightful situations that only Jerry can cover up. It's a series of silly sequences. The visual diary of a few weeks in the life of a madcap who makes for fun. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Jerry Lewis's The Bellboy. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Daniel. Sam, what is going on with the busiest woman in Pennsylvania? <laughs> I was just in Montreal for Fantasia for the launch of this book that I edited on John Roland called Lost Girls. And that is available for pre-order now through the Spectacular Optical website. And over at Diabolique, we are about to have our summer issue come out, which is all sort of occult and folk magic, witchcraft themed. And what is new with you, Daniel? I'm currently producing three DVD titles, which I'm not even sure if they've been announced yet, um, but they're not Polish. And on top of that, I'm uh, currently preparing a official Andrzej Żuławski website to accompany a number of uh, touring programs that start uh, later in this year. Well, thank you again, guys. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I am not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.